Corbin Vallas, welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Bill. Awesome. Great to have you on. You've been a listener of the podcast for a while. I know that, that I've, I've corresponded with you in a few times and, and certainly see your name out there on, on social media. But recently, you wrote a really incredible blog post uh, about the Adam God uh, doctrine, uh, which, which, as Melder McConkie says, which we'll get into, we now refer to as the Adam God theory. But that kind of makes the fun of this whole discussion is kind of going through this dialogue of conversating about the Adam God uh, teachings and how they went from uh, doctrine to theory to from true to false and all the mess that's in between. But Corbin, I thought at least I would give you a moment to, to talk to the audience, give them a feel for who you are and, and just maybe a brief bio so that people get a feel uh, for who's on my show today. Well, thank you very much, Bill. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, I am 56 years old, which is by way of saying that I was baptized in 1978 when I was 18. I served my mission from 79 to 81 in Japan. I have made a study of Mormonism and things related to Mormonism, uh, an intense hobby. I've been published in a few periodicals. I've had a couple of papers published in the Journal of Book Mormon Studies back when it was getting off the ground in the early 1990s. And I've had a couple of papers published more recently in BYU Studies. Awesome. So I know that this topic of Adam God is something that you have thought a lot about. I wondered if you could maybe just run the listener through some of your early experiences kind of encountering the Adam God uh, teachings from Brigham Young and and maybe help us set up uh, kind of how you, you interacted with this, this doctrine slash theory um, throughout your life? I'd be happy to. Well, as I said, I joined the church when I was 18, right out of high school. I was still living at home. Unfortunately, my brother had also just converted to a church, but the church he had converted to was the Jehovah's Witnesses. So what my parents had was a new Mormon and a new Jehovah's Witness in the same home together, and my brother and I ended up having running gun battles over doctrine. One, of, one, time, one day he brought home a, um, some anti-Mormon literature, and he gave it to me to read. I read it. It had something to do with this crazy idea, quoting Brigham Young as teaching that Adam is God. This really, really bothered me. Now, I want to emphasize that because I'm 56 now. I've studied this backward and forward, inside and out. It doesn't bother me at all anymore that Brigham Young taught that Adam is God. But back then, it really did. And I know from personal experience that it can be a very troubling Thing to find out for a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and it impacted me very heavily. I was very upset. I remember going to church. A different ward was meeting, but I was so upset. I went to church. I marched up to the missionaries who were on either side of the chapel door greeting people as they were coming in. I didn't know these missionaries from Adam, pardon the pun, but I walked up to them and I said, I need to ask you a question. Do we believe that Adam is God? And they both looked kind of surprised, looked at each other, turned to me and said, no, we don't. And I thought, okay, well, that settles it for me. And it did settle it for me, for them. Now, if we go forward to when I'm on my mission, it's 1980. I think it's summertime. This is the Osaka, Japan mission. There's an area conference. President Kimball is present. So all the missionaries are there. All the members in the area are there. Afterward, we're all leaving this, uh, this kind of coliseum that they had it in. We're all walking home, streaming out of the Coliseum, 
And I notice that there's these Mormon missionaries who are outside who are handing out literature to the members who are leaving the Coliseum for the area conference. And there are um, American missionaries handing out literature to the Americans. There are Japanese missionaries handing out literature to the Japanese members. And it kind of crosses my mind, this is really an inefficient way for the church to hand out stuff to the people at the conference because this is hit and miss out here. And if they were handing out in the conference, they'd be able to get it to everybody. Well, as I'm passing a guy who's dressed up like an American missionary, and he hands me the literature, I figure out why it is that they're not on the inside passing it out because it's anti-Mormon literature. And I got my little pamphlet, and it wasn't that long, but lo and behold, it's got all these quotes, most of them from Brigham Young, talking about how Adam is our father and our God, and the only God with whom we have to do. And I looked at these quotes, now of course they're taken out of context, because it's just a little pamphlet, and... But I'm looking at this, and once again, I'm kind of troubled by this, and I'm thinking, you know, this does not sound like what it is that I've been taught by the missionaries when I joined the church in 1978, and it doesn't sound like what I'm teaching investigators here in Japan about the gospel. So I stayed awake at night for like a week trying to make sense of this and trying to think, okay, how does what Brigham Young is quoted in these pamphlets, how does that, how is it possible to make that match with what the church is teaching today. And I tried, and I tried, and I tried. And it was like pounding the proverbial square peg into the round hole. And I finally gave it up, because I couldn't come up with a way to make Brigham Young be teaching what Spencer Kimball was teaching. Spencer Kimball, of course, being the president of the church when I was on my mission. So I put it on the shelf. I said, look, i got other things to deal with, and I'll put it on my shelf. Maybe later I'll get around to it. Okay, third story. This is the last story about this. And uh, I get back from my mission. It's the 1980s. I get heavily immersed in Mormon apologetics. It really appealed to me. I'm, I'm ordering everything that Farms has available by reprints or copies or anything. Um, so I learn a lot about Mormon apologetics. And, of course, one of those things involves, dun-dun-dun, the Adam-God theory. So I start doing some more research. I start finding out, you know, these quotes from the pamphlet in Japan really are not ripped out of context. Actually, if they're in context, it's still just as confusing. And I went through this very lengthy process of being so confused by what Brigham Young was saying. I could not make heads or tails out of what he was saying. It made no sense whatsoever. And then, through a strange confluence of events, I suddenly realized why it was that Brigham Young was not making any sense. And the reason why Brigham Young wasn't making any, any sense is because I was insisting on making Brigham Young teach modern Mormon doctrine. As soon as I allowed Brigham Young to speak for himself and just try and understand what he was trying to convey, everything fell into place. And what he was teaching was the Adam-God doctrine. He was teaching something fundamentally different than what the church teaches today. And that has a lot to do with what we're going to be talking about tonight. Incredible. And I, and I will tell you, Corbin, that I, I've got somewhat of a similar backdrop as I'm, as I'm investigating the church as a teenager and just reading everything I can get my hands on, I too come across the Adam God, um, theory slash doctrine. Again, I just think we're going to have to just label, let's just call it the Adam God theory. That's what Elder McConkie likes to call it. So I encounter this as well early on. And, and the same quote you just talked about 
where, you know, Adam is our, our God and the only God with which we have to do with. And I, man, I, it threw me for a loop as well. And, and we'll get into here in a little while some of the explanations that, that tried to kind of, um, sidestep the, the problem. And each of those in some way were, were things that I kind of had to work through and see, did this, does this work or doesn't it? But just to let you know, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of us out there that if we're reading about Mormonism, we encounter this. And then not only that, but that some of the apologetics around this issue are so bad that they almost make the issue worse. And I'm just grateful to have you on uh, tonight. You, you wrote this blog post recently. I think it was on Rational Faiths, correct? Yes. And I, I just wanted to ask you, have you, have you written other things on Adam God? Have you, have you, is there other work of yours that you've touched on this subject? Well, back in the 1980s, when I was really immersing myself in the Adam God teachings, we're, we're going to call it the Adam God theory tonight. Uh, I was trying to get to the bottom of this because I had learned all the apologetics. I'd heard all the apologetic answers. And by that, I mean the standard answers that I heard or read from Mormon authors or leaders to somehow diffuse or obfuscate the idea that Brigham Young actually taught this. And at some point, I probably used one or more of those myself before I found out what the truth was. But I, I really did a lot of deep digging. I ended up writing a 300-page manuscript on the subject, which contained, um, I don't know that it contained every single quote that Brigham Young ever gave, but it certainly had the lion's share in it. And um, submitted that around for publication, including to Deseret Books, who, perhaps not surprisingly, declined publishing that manuscript, but through the process of working through that and writing it up, I came to uh, be very familiar with the issues and the quotes and the history of it. So you couldn't convince Sherry Dew to run with it? No, I could not. By the way, about this blog, I've got to say this while I'm thinking about it, is this blog that I wrote, which is actually in April of 2015, um, suddenly, in the last couple of weeks, it took on renewed life. I think somebody posted it and uh, somewhere else, maybe on Mormon Reddit, and uh, all of a sudden, it kind of got a lot, lot more attention. But when it comes to the blog itself, I need to mention that my home teacher is the guy who suggested, well, actually, he gave me the inspiration for writing this, because I was talking to him about the Adam-God theory and a few things. And um, he says, um, uh, well, he talks, he, he's a very good, good guy, good home teacher, wonderful, faithful member of the church. Keith Wilson is his name. And this is a shout out to you, Keith. I promised him I would say that. But he, uh, I said to him, I said, you know, I'm going to write my next blog on the Adam-God theory. So he always uh, takes credit for the fact that it ever appeared in the first place. Great, great. And uh, let's, let's jump into it. So there might be one listener in this audience who says, what the heck are we talking about? Would you mind giving us a run-through of what it was that Brigham was teaching and perhaps what the scope of that was in terms of you know, is it just one quote? I know one quote is often used, the one that you and I both mentioned here earlier. But there are also, you know, is there a lot more of those? And, and of course, I'm maybe leading the witness a little bit here. But uh, give us a rundown of what the Adam-God theory is and uh, maybe how expansive it is throughout early Mormon history. I'd uh, be happy to do that. The Adam-God theory first appears on the scene in published form in 1852, Journal of Discourses, Volume 1, pages 50 and 51. It's a very well-known citation for those who know anything about the Adam-God theory. Brigham Young comes out uh, with guns blazing, basically, with his uh, introduction of this um, theory 
that he has. He claims that it was given to him by revelation, that everybody on the earth is going to know it sooner or later, and that uh, you better be careful how you treat this doctrine because it's going to prove your salvation or your damnation. So you can't get much stronger than that. But that's a very famous one where he says, Adam is our father and our God and the only God with whom we have to do. Um, some of the apologetics that I did read in the 1980s do try and address the whole theory as if that is the only time that Brigham Young mentioned it. But as I dug deeper and found out more, uh, this is actually a continuing theme of his that he mentions again and again and again from 1852 until he passes away in 1877 in a variety of contexts, including General Conference, including, oh, there might be um, the Deseret News or whatever the newspaper was back then in Utah. It would appear in certain articles. But it was continuous, it was constant, and it was consistent. Brigham Young's teaching on this for 25 years. Now, you'd also asked, <laughs> I think you asked two questions, you'd also asked, what is the Adam-God theory? I can try and explain this as um, as easily as possible. I think the first thing that people have a problem with is thinking this is really confusing, it's really deep, it's really mysterious, but actually it's not. I think it's really pretty simple as soon as you let Brigham Young speak for himself. And I'll, I'll try and characterize it right now. I expect that most people who are listening to this are faithful Latter-day Saints. They know what the current teaching is of the plan of salvation as it relates to God the Father and his children. And it's basically, you've got God the Father, and, you know, of course, he's married up there to at least one woman, though we don't usually talk about her or them. But we've got God the Father, and he has all these spirit children. And one of them's Jesus, and one of them's Adam, and one of them's Lucifer, and one of them's you, and one of them's me, and one of them's everybody else who's ever come to this earth, right? So that is the idea that's taught today. Now, what Brigham Young taught is that God the Father, who is the father of all the spirits of everybody who comes to this earth, that's Adam. And really, it's about as simple as that. The next question that comes up, of course, is, well, then what happens to God? And you say, what God? Well, the God who appears to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Okay, what Brigham Young did was he taught that the God of the Garden of Eden, who is referred to there as Elohim, let me just back up for just a second for clarity. I have found that it is much easier to talk about this if we use names such as Elohim and Adam. Because when we talk about God the Father, it will become very confusing if we don't stick to names, and you'll see why in a second. Okay, so Adam is the father of our spirits. And Elohim is Adam's God. He is above Adam. And frankly, in the Adam-God theory, roughly speaking, Adam is to Elohim as we are to Adam. So whereas Adam is our father and our God, Elohim becomes either our grandfather or a great-grandfather. It really makes a lot of sense if you just think of it in terms of our own families, because everybody has a father, but everybody also has a grandfather, and everybody also has a great-grandfather. That's what Brigham Young was looking at in terms of uh, the gods who rule over this earth, that this earth has one god, the god of this earth, it's Adam. And then you've got... Um, Elohim above him, who is a God over much more than just this earth. Interesting. I, I do want to ask here, and I know we'll get into this maybe a little bit later as well as we, as we talk about some other tangents on, on this idea, but it, it, it's, I get the sense, and I haven't read the entire Journal of Discourses, but I've read enough of it 
to know the areas where Brigham is talking about the Adam God theory. And it feels like, at least in places, that Brigham does on some level maybe contradict himself. And, and, and I remember reading it at the time, and I think part of that struggle was this idea of Elohim and Michael and Jehovah and Adam and and using sometimes one of these terms to mean one or more of these other ones. Do you get the sense, you're much more familiar with the material, do you get the sense that that was just us being uncomfortable with trying to force Brigham into our modern-day Mormon theology, or do you really feel like Brigham on some level did contradict himself when talking about this subject? I have seen no occasion on which Brigham Young contradicted himself on this subject. It is brought, this is one of the apologetics that's used to defend against it, and uh, Bruce R. McConkie used it. I've seen it used in other books. But the idea is put out there that um, Brigham Young could not have taught that Adam was God because Brigham Young knew that in the temple endowment, Adam and God are two separate individuals. That's the argument at the heart of it. The problem is, is that that argument would work if Mormonism believed in only one God. But Brigham Young never taught that Adam was Elohim. Brigham Young did teach consistently that Adam was God. Adam is the God of this earth. Elohim is the God above him, who is a God over much more than this earth. And because Adam is the God of this earth, that is why Brigham Young said, Adam is our father and our God and the only God with whom we have to do. I wanted to ask you, too, I mean, you talked earlier about us being kind of in our present sense of what Mormon theology is, what we believe, and then trying to, I guess, struggle in a sense to reconcile what Brigham's teaching back then with with our standard, or at least what we think, our standard Mormon theology today that we just automatically assume has always been around this way. Can you maybe walk us through a little bit, maybe comparing with, with current Mormon doctrine, how this kind of fits in? Uh, I'd be happy to. And I would tell you, I would add that I don't think we automatically assume that what's taught today is the way it's always been. I think that we are actually actively taught that in our church. Right. In other words, it's not something we just sort of assume. We are taught that the way things are now are the way things have always been. And then, unfortunately, what we'll get to before too long is really the subject of the blog, which is showing how the church rewrites history, omits history, edits history, in order to uh, make it look like the way things are now or the way things have always been, even though that's not the case. But now to your question about uh, how it fits in. Well, the thing is this. Brigham Young, you know, so often... um, I've had uh, seminary teachers, or I should say institute teachers. Um, you bring up Brigham Young, you bring up Adam God, and they kind of roll their eyes and just go, oh, well, that's Brother Brigham, as if he can just sort of be pawned off as some kind of maybe D student who really didn't think very much about theology and maybe really was much better organizer than he was a theologian. I disagree with that, because if you compare it, here's what's going on in current Mormon uh, theology. It's on two levels. It's really just in two dimensions. Um, if you were to ask most Mormons uh, what the shape is of the, um, you know, the relationship of the gods and everything, well, you've got God the Father and God the Mother, and they're equal, right? And then every single other player in the entire plan of salvation are their spirit children, from Jesus, who would be the firstborn, right, to everybody else who's ever been on this earth. 
The question comes then when you ask, uh, when you ask, okay, I understand that for purposes of this earth, but what happens when we start taking into account the scriptural pronouncements that God is actually the God over worlds innumerable? He's the God over so many worlds that we can't even count them. And we understand through our scriptures that, yeah, a lot of those are inhabited with his children. Are we supposed to think that the God of this earth, who had the spirit children who came here, is also the God who had all the spirit children in every single inhabited planet throughout this entire universe? Now, it would take a lot of time and be a lot of effort just to have the spirit children on this earth. I wouldn't want to even think about it populating the entire universe. So that's one thing, uh, is that Mormons today tend to think of uh, two dimensions. Brigham Young thought in three dimensions. He's adding an extra layer there. And what he's saying is, no, we've got a God of this earth, and we know who that is. That's revealed in the scriptures, he, he believed. That's Adam, who is also Michael the archangel. But he has a God above him, who is a God over more worlds than just this. And he also left open the possibility of a God above him, uh, who might be uh, a God over even more worlds than that. So Brigham Young is really thinking hard about things, and he is um, he's actually accounting for some things in current Mormon doctrine that really aren't answered by the current system as it's taught. Did that part make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that's looking back. Now, if you look forward, and by that I mean back in history uh, to the pre-mortal existence and things that happened before that, if you look forward, you're going to find that Brigham Young makes a lot of sense with the Adam-God theory. By the way, I'm not a proponent of the Adam-God theory. Uh, this is just a historical discussion that I'm having with you tonight. I'm not trying to convince anybody of what's true and what's not. I'm just saying that here, if we look forward, according to current Mormon doctrine, Every single person who is righteous on this earth gets exalted, he and his wife, right? That's going to be millions of people. So if those people then go on, they're exalted, they become gods, they have spirit offspring, they create their own planets, they have more children who go down to those planets in some way or another, and they replicate the planet salvation that we're going through right now, right? Well, all of a sudden, you've got gods millions of them potentially from this world who in the future are going to be gods over their own posterity on different worlds. So when you start looking at even what modern Mormon doctrine predicts is going to happen from this earth forward, you start seeing how Brigham Young's idea of looking at this in three dimensions or multiple levels starts to make more sense. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's good. I mean, you're filling in this idea that that Brigham actually is filling in some gaps, that, that Mormon theology, when you sit down and say, okay, I'm just going to totally let my brain just try to absorb or, or, or go off on these tangents and try to figure out how this all fits in place, Brigham is actually doing some really good theology here, trying to figure out how this process is eternal and, and how this, this eternal increase type thing happens. And, and as you're talking about that stuff, it certainly causes just a moment of my memory to kind of click where Elder McConkie, and we'll get to this later, Elder McConkie writes Eugene England, and the main point he's writing Brother England over is this idea that, that Eugene England is teaching that God is increasing, and, and Elder McConkie feels the need to kind of stomp that out. But even that idea, as you're pointing out, goes back to this Adam-God theory. Yeah, I think that it does. Um, that was, yes, I'll just say yes on that. 
there are so many tangents that we could go off on here, and I'm trying to consciously not do that because it's, it's complicated enough just what we're going to go through, and so I want to try and keep it as straightforward as possible. But, yes, and we will get to that. I want to ask you this, which is one thing I've heard as I've read about the Adam-God theory and as I've looked at the apologetic ways in which to try and reconcile it and try to study out the history, I've come across several times people saying that Brigham Young got this idea, at least the very beginning of it, from Joseph Smith at the end of Joseph Smith's life. And I wonder if you could just speak for a moment. It would be nice for the listeners and for myself to kind of know where that comes from, if there's any evidence for it, and if the Adam-God theory is, at least on the evidential nature of it, completely disconnected from Joseph Smith. I think that on at least two occasions, Brigham Young made the claim that he learned this Adam-God theory from Joseph Smith. Now, there's, there's no indication in anything that Joseph Smith wrote, anything that anybody wrote down that he said, that he ever taught the Adam-God theory. Is it possible that he taught it privately to Brigham Young? Yes, it's possible. I don't think it's likely. However, first off, the very fact that Brigham Young feels the need to claim authority for this teaching from Joseph Smith is suggestive because he is not finding 100% support among the saints for this teaching. He is encountering some pushback. And so that's why I think he feels the need to anchor this with Joseph Smith. It's a very common thing, uh, whether it's Christianity or whatever religion, uh, for a person to come along later to come up with some idea and then in order to submit its authority to cite it back to the founder of the religion or some other important person in the religion, whether it's Jesus or Paul, or in this case, Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, however, did present some radical doctrines and I think that Brigham Young just saw himself as putting the pieces together. I think Brigham Young saw himself as saying, okay, here's two plus two, which equals four. And the two main things that, that Joseph Smith did teach that are documented is, first off, uh, his position on Adam is radical. A lot of times Mormons don't realize how radical our position on Adam is. In pretty much every other Christian religion, Adam is just some schmo who is created, goes to Eden, disobeys God's command, and gets thrown out of the garden and ends up goofing up God's plan to have all of his children live forever on paradise earth. Mormonism, through Joseph Smith and through the Revelation, says, no, Adam is a big deal. Adam is very important. In fact, he's so important, he is Michael, the archangel. So Adam is Michael in uh, LDS theology, it's very well known amongst Mormons, it's no surprise to you. What is sometimes overlooked is that Michael is also put into the Godhead of Mormonism. And let me explain that. Uh, Mormonism, for whatever reasons, developed two Godheads. Um, it started with the original Godhead, by that I mean the one the Christians have had forever, which is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But later on in his career, at least by the time Joseph Smith is formulating the Temple Endowment Ceremony, he's got a different Godhead, which is uh, not labeled as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's Elohim, Jehovah, and Michael. And this is the Godhead, the great creative council that's in charge of creation. And um, the endowment sort of portrays a little bit about how they work in concert in order to bring that about. But this is what a big deal uh, Michael, or slash Adam, becomes from Joseph Smith's teachings. And Brigham Young knew that. The second thing that Joseph Smith taught 
in the last recorded sermon that he gave before he was murdered, and this is, uh, a lot of people have heard of the, um, the King Follett discourse. Well, this is given after that, and it's the Sermon at the Grove. It doesn't have a special name like King Follett, but it's called the Sermon at the Grove. It was given at the Grove next to the, the Nauvoo Temple that was being erected at the time. And it is in that sermon that Joseph Smith starts talking about God having a father. And he starts talking about where was there a son without a father. And he opens the idea. Well, first off, he pretty much expressly talks about God having a father. But he opens up the idea to an eternal regression of God's. God having a father, having a father, having a father, having a father. So Brigham Young not only knows Adam is a big deal. He's in a, a version of the Godhead in the endowment ceremony. But also, he's listening to Joseph Smith expand the relationship of the gods upward and backward pretty much to infinity. So what he's looking at now is, okay, looking at what Joseph Smith has taught about Adam, look at what he's talking about, God having a father, and incorporating, I think, what Brigham Young had as an idea, which is, once you're exalted, you go on and you create one earth, and then you inhabit it with your spirit children, who is going to be the God of this earth? In other words, who stands in relationship to this earth as we will stand in relationship to our first world once we're exalted? And his answer was Adam, which tends to make a little bit of sense because Adam is only talked about in reference to this world. Adam's not talked about as having any power or authority or creation over other worlds, just this world. But when you start getting above Adam, then we start having scriptures talking about how they've created all the worlds, or worlds innumerable, which sounds like a much higher grade of God, more advanced God than Adam. Yeah, and it seems like, right, in some ways, even in today's Mormonism, when we go to the temple to do an endowment session, it becomes apparent that, that you know, again, Elohim, Michael, and Jehovah have this close relationship where the three of them are working together to create these worlds, and, and I totally can like now put these pieces together where you're talking earlier about it being essentially a family, a grandfather, a father, and a son. And in that, in some ways, being one Godhead to Mormonism. And then this other di- idea of, of Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. And, and you're right. There's so many places within Mormonism that we almost get kind of this mixed message. Um, anyway, I just one of those things that just kind of catches my, my ears as you're talking I, I do want to get into the a little more of the history of Adam God. You talked a little bit about it earlier in terms of when Brigham Young started preaching it, how long, you know, he, from the time he first mentions it, at least in the uh, public record that we have, till his death. Are there other things you want to add to, to kind of the history of its its promulgation? I think it's important to note that it's pretty much concluded, as far as I'm concerned, from my investigation as a historical fact that Brigham Young was responsible for incorporating the Adam-God theory in the temple ceremony in the St. George Temple. Specifically, what I mean is, is that, um, well, you know, there's a, there's a lecture at the Vail. I don't know that it's really that long anymore, or if they even use it anymore. I remember that when I went through the temple the first time in Provo back in 1979, there was a lecture at the Vale, and it was sort of an explanatory thing about what it was that was going to happen and what it was you were going to see and trying to prepare people for it. And I think there was a period of time at which they didn't do it for every endowment, but if there were people going through their, for their first endowment, 
then they would have it. The idea of the lecture on the veil comes from Brigham Young. And Brigham Young instituted a lecture at the veil at the St. George Temple so that those going there for their endowment would hear the lecture first. And the lecture itself teaches the Adam-God theory. In fact, the lecture at the veil at the St. George Temple, I think, is the fullest and clearest explanation of the Adam-God theory that Brigham Young ever gave. And it appears to have been there at the St. George Temple and in use from, uh, this is what uh, the scholars that I've consulted believe, from 1877 or whenever it was the the St. George Temple opened um, until around 1904. And if that's correct, then the Adam-God theory was taught not only by the president of the church for 25 years, but for an additional 25 years after he passed away at his direction in the holiest precincts of the LDS church. Yeah, it's it's interesting. My boss is a huge collector of of Mormon historical works. He in in our company that I work for, we've got a museum case and there's a first edition of the Book of Mormon, a second edition, a, a first edition of Joseph Smith's history by his mother, which goes by another name, but it's the first time we hear of Joseph's leg surgery. And he just has tons of these kinds of things. And and one of the things he has is a copy of John Nuttall's diary. And I was just over his house last week, and we're having this really fascinating conversation about Adam God. And he pulls this diary off of his shelf. He says, here, let's just read it right from the book. And as you're pointing out, there's this idea that, that Nuttall is reporting in his diary, that Brigham Young is coming down to St. George. They're getting ready to open the temple. He instructs Nuttall to implement this discourse that you're talking about at the veil. And my boss is hesitant. My boss is hesitant to say that the discourse is actually used. You're indicating that it was, and, and I'll simply say I actually agree with you because one, there's some facts around this that we should probably hit on, and at least the one I want to bring to the table is that Brigham Young, after instructing Brother Nuttall to, to implement this at the discourse, Brigham stays in St. George for weeks and weeks and weeks to see that the, the startup of the temple gets off the ground. And it seems just like a logical, you know, reasonable conclusion to make that if Brigham's saying, I want this implemented, and he's hanging around for weeks upon weeks on end as the temple opens and is going through these ordinances, that it's certainly going to be used. I, I agree with you. Is it okay with you at this point if I were to quote the relevant portion from the lecture at the Vale, as recorded in John Nuttall's diary, um, for use, and it was at Brigham Young's direction for use as the lecture at the Vale? Uh, I repeat, I think this is the, the clearest expression. I would, I would love you to read it. So I think that the clearest expression of this is in the lecture at the Vale, and I'm just going to quote the part that deals with this, uh, the Adam-God theory. Here's the quote. Adam was an immortal being when he came on this earth. He had lived on an earth similar to ours. He had received the priesthood and the keys thereof and had been faithful in all things and gained his resurrection and his exaltation and was crowned with glory, immortality, and eternal lives and was numbered with the gods for such he became through his faithfulness and had, okay, comma, and had begotten all the spirit that was to come to this earth. And Eve, our common mother, who is the mother of all living, bore those spirits in the celestial world. 
And when this earth was organized by Elohim, Jehovah, and Michael, who is Adam, our common father, Adam and Eve had the privilege to continue the work of progression, consequently came to this earth and commenced the great work of forming tabernacles for those spirits to dwell in. So that is the main uh, enunciation of the Adam-God theory. Like I say, it's pretty darn direct and clear. Uh, and then a little bit later in the, um, the lecture at the Vale, uh, Brigham Young talks about the relationship of Jesus Christ to Adam. Um, I'll just go ahead and tell you that that's something we haven't talked about. But basically, uh, the Adam-God theory has Jesus as the firstborn spirit son of Adam. So in other words, the same way we think of Jesus as the firstborn spirit son of Elohim in the current Mormon doctrine, Brigham Young saw Jesus as the firstborn spirit child of Adam. And he was also clear in other teachings that he felt that Jesus' atonement applied only to the inhabitants of this earth, and every world had its own Savior, who likewise was the firstborn uh, son of the God of that world. Okay, so back to the quote. Father Adam's oldest son, who is the heir of the family, is Father Adam's first begotten in the spirit world, who, according to the flesh, is the only begotten, as it is written. So that's the end of the quote. Incredible. And I just, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, like, if I remember right, Nuttall is, is he the temple president in St. George, or what's his, do you know what his position is in working with Brigham Young to get the temple off the ground? I will tell you, my recollection is, is that he was a scribe. Right, and I knew I knew he worked closely with Brigham, and I think some sources I saw mentioned him as a secretary to Brigham Young. Yeah, but I know he's down there. He's in St. George. He's he's there as the temple is getting off the ground, and Brigham is working. You know, obviously they're having meetings. They're they're instructing the temple workers on what to do, and and Nuttall is in the midst of all this. He's writing these things down. It his journals make it into some special collection at BYU, and 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 thank goodness we have them. Because it really shows that from here on out, uh, unreasonable answers, unplausible answers simply aren't going to work because we have this, this firm teaching that, that Jesus Christ the Savior is the offspring, spiritual offspring of, of Adam. And it makes it clear cut that Brigham is really not, you know, skirting around the edges here. He's, he's being pretty matter of factly in what he's teaching. Yes, and uh, just to correct the record, it appears that John Nuttall acted as the temple recorder to Brigham Young. Gotcha. Later on, he went on to be private secretary to Presidents John Taylor and Wilfred Woodruff, but he was the temple recorder. Gotcha. Excellent. Well, he took very good notes. Yes, he did. That's well, it had to be recited <laughs> word for word before every endowment session. Thank goodness for those secretaries and temple recorders. Yeah, and it's really interesting because if you know what the Adam-God theory is, and you think about this being the lecture on the veil, and then you go through or re-envision the endowment ceremony, all of a sudden it takes on a wholly different meaning. Yeah, yeah. So now what I want to do, Corbin, is let's, let's begin to do two things. Let's maybe first set up some of the apologetic arguments so that people can see, and this I think this will ring a bell with people maybe in their mid-30s and older, who prior to the internet were encountering these issues and were having people try to give them answers to reconcile them. And I want the audience, the, the listeners, to just as we go through each of these arguments to recognize maybe some of the ways in which the church used these or that, you know, lay members use these or mm. leaders within the church use these. 
And then once we get through that, we'll start to talk about how we've gone from Brigham Young teaching it to today it just being kind of swept under the rug and not really talked about, at least in official uh, avenues. But let's first go through some of these apologetic ways in which to reconcile this that were that have been attempted over the years. Okay, can I briefly say right before we get to that, that obviously things are different today than they were in Brigham Young's day. In Brigham Young's day, everybody knew that he was teaching this, whether they agreed with it or not. It was not under the rug. It was not in a corner. And today, if it's ever mentioned at all, it's basically to deny that he ever taught it. Um, but there was a transition period in there, which was at the very end of the 19th century after Joseph, uh, after Brigham Young has passed away. And, um, but still, there's tons of people who are still alive who knew that he had taught the Adam-God theory. And this question started coming up. You know, Brigham Young, he taught this Adam-God theory. Should we still be teaching this to uh, investigators? Should we be teaching this as missionaries? Should we be teaching it in church classes? And these questions were raised by letter to church authorities. And there are at least a couple of occasions, like uh, 1897, 1906 or so, where the answer comes back saying, look, we know that Brigham Young taught some things concerning Adam, but we have decided that the better course is let's not talk about it anymore. Let's not have any disputes about it anymore. Let's just focus on the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and let this whole Adam-God thing alone because it really was causing a lot of trouble even back then. Let me interrupt you here for a second, too. I want to throw this in. I think, too, it should be said, Corbin, because you hit on this earlier that that this – this teaching by Brigham Young wasn't fully accepted by the membership. And two things that I've come across in my reading as I've gone through the quotes that, that of Brigham talking about this, actually I should say more than two things. One is that Brigham claimed, as you pointed out earlier, Brigham claimed to know this teaching by revelation. He, he, he on several occasions, at least more than once, makes the comment that he knew this teaching and it came from God to him, that he knew by either inspired thought or from revelation that this was true. He also makes the comment that other members of the church also knew it was true. Now, those members include lots of leadership. John Taylor and Wilford Woodruff and others are on the record as agreeing with Brigham and repeating to some extent what he's teaching. But at the same time, again, as you note, there are a lot of members who were struggling with this and they weren't fully accepting it. And I think it's important as we work towards kind of the back half of this podcast to, to reemphasize that you made mention earlier on that Brigham Young said he, he understood this was a hard thing for the members to accept, but that it was crucial to their salvation that they accept this teaching. And, and I think that plays out as we go along. Very good. So, yeah, run us through some of the apologetics. Okay, well, these apologetics start out, as early as I can tell, around the 1950s with Joseph Fielding Smith and his Answers to Gospel Questions, which is a regular column he wrote for the Improvement Era, answering gospel questions, since he was the scriptorian in the church. And at least a couple occasions, people wrote asking about the Adam-God theory. And uh, he starts off with outright denials. The outright denial that Brigham Young ever taught the Adam-God theory is the most commonly heard response today or for the past 60 years because it's the first line of defense. If you simply deny it, then all questions should go away. There's nothing more to see here. Just move along. And uh, we find things like that. I quoted some in my blog 
There's another one from Bruce R. McConkie in the collection of his writings and sermons called, uh, I think it's called The Teachings of Bruce R. McConkie, where he denies that it was ever taught by any general authority. So there's lots of um, denials. There's also some that are more carefully worded denials, such as the one by Spencer Kimball in 1976, which is very frequently cited, too, in this context. And by carefully worded, what I mean is uh, he comes across as denying that Brigham Young ever taught it without actually ever saying that he denied it. Here's the quote from 1976, uh, October General Conference. We warn you against the dissemination of doctrines which are not according to the scriptures and which are alleged to have been taught by some of the general authorities of past generations. Such, for instance, is the Adam-God theory. We denounce that theory and hope that everyone will be cautioned against this and other kinds of false doctrine. So there, um, if you read that, if you were there president conference, I think most people would walk away with the impression that the president of the church has denied that Brigham Young ever taught it or that any have ever taught it, but actually he doesn't say that. He just refers to uh, the dissemination of certain doctrines which are alleged to have been taught by some of the general authorities of past generations. When a person uses alleged in a sentence, frequently the idea is to give the impression that it really didn't happen, but you're not really saying it didn't happen. All you're saying is that it's alleged to have happened, which doesn't say whether it happened or not. But he, but he very clearly denounces that theory and he hopes that everyone will be cautioned against this and other kinds of false doctrine. So he denounces the Adam-God theory and uh, brands it as false doctrine. We can only assume if when President Kimball says Adam-God theory, he's actually talking about what Brigham Young said, because a lot of times, like, uh, you've had conversations, I'm sure, with many Christians who believe the Trinity, but they have all sorts of different ideas as to what the Trinity really means even though they're using the word Trinity. Uh, we don't know that President Kimball was really describing the Adam-God theory, but I think it's safe to say that he should have known and that he labels it as false doctrine. But he, but he, doesn't, but he doesn't come out and deny that Brigham Young ever taught it, which is really the, the main point I'm driving at. Right, that one can use the word allege, and that allegation could be true or false, and that Spencer doesn't, you know, President Kimball doesn't say one way or the other. Right. So he leaves room there. And I don't know if that's because uh, he did know that Brigham Young did teach the Adam-God theory, but he's simply saying it's false doctrine, or whether he simply was not aware of all of the times that uh, Brigham Young did teach the theory. Interesting. And so you have this idea of just denying it kind of being the first line of defense. Let's right. just say that doesn't work, Corbin. Let's say that somebody's not going to settle for that. What's, uh, what's the next one that, that folks would use? Well, it worked for me the first time I approached those missionaries back before my mission. Do we believe that Adam is God? No. It's a denial. And that settled it for a while. But the problem is that then you start reading about it or um, looking around or finding different quotes. And you start finding out, now wait a second. I'm reading from the Journal of Discourses. I'm reading from the original of John Nuttall's diary or whatever it is that you have there. And I'm reading things from Brigham Young that are starting to sound an awful lot like the Adam-God theory, what's going on here? Apparently he did actually teach some things. So the second line of defense is that Brigham Young was misquoted. Okay. Well, he, he may have said some things that sound like the Adam-God theory, but he was misquoted by whoever his scribe was, 
and he wasn't, it wasn't taken down accurately, and therefore it's getting kind of confused. But he never really taught it originally. So the misquoted argument is the next one. And I think that you found a letter from 1966 by Hubie Brown that mentions that. Yeah, and I've got it here. And I should mention first, too, that, again, I grew up kind of right in the cusp of the Internet coming out and becoming useful to disseminating information. And, and just prior to that, <clears throat> again, I'm jo- I'm, I'm joined the church in 1997, uh, April of 97, I believe I joined the church. And just as the Internet is becoming kind of useful to getting out information, I, I learn about Adam God. I'm asking people questions. But all I hear is that one quote we shared at the beginning. Right. I was unaware that there were, you know, 15 or so quotes from Brigham that touch on this topic. And so with one quote, I think this idea of, hey, we're just misinterpreting Brigham. He actually on the very next page teaches it clearly. It's just, it's just we're misunderstanding him and the critics are using this as a catapult to pick on the church. That actually worked for a while. Because, again, I thought there was one, maybe two quotes. But, again, recognizing that there is just a wide breadth of of these, that kind of uh, apologetic argument just seemed to kind of lose, lose its power, lose its grip. This letter I found was a letter from Hubie Brown written to a Mr. Norris L. Reynolds. And it sounds like Morris Reynolds is discovering some problematic issues within the church He's writing church headquarters or perhaps writing Hubie Brown directly. And, and Brother Brown is the one who's responding back. And he says this, and there's actually several errors that you and I have already talked about in terms of what's in this, but I think it's interesting for the listener, but it does touch on Adam God. He says, Dear Brother Reynolds, replying to your recent letter, which was updated, I am pleased to advise you as follows in answer to your questions. None of the early revelations of the church have been revised. And the Doctrine and Covenants stands as printed, including sections 5 and 7. These two sections and some others are addressed directly to certain individuals, but there are lessons in them for all of us, and therefore they have not been deleted. The Adam-God Doctrine is not the doctrine of the Church, and the reports on that subject as published in the Journal of Discourses are not accurate. The Godhead consists of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. There is no doctrine of the church requiring the shedding of blood for salvation, for the salvation where the, where certain sins have been committed. We have been accused of such doctrine, but it is not true. I am glad that you are investigating the gospel and shall be glad if in any way I can be helpful. Sincerely, your brother, H.B. Brown, and then underneath, Hugh B. Brown. And again, just a note, I mean, Hugh, Hugh's a smart guy. I think he was a progressive Mormon of his day. And yet, for some reason, on all three of these issues, he seems to be completely unaware of the context of the of the problem and why people would raise questions about these things. And and he seems to kind of sidestep the Adam God idea by saying, you know, you know, Brigham's teaching something in the Journal of Discourses, but it isn't this. Right, and that was exactly what I focused in on because we were talking about the second line of defense about Brigham Young being misquoted, and that is the main point that Hubie Brown makes in this letter. The Adam-God Doctrine is not the doctrine of the Church, and the reports on that subject, as published in the Journal of Discourses, are not accurate. Crazy. I mean, like you say, first line of defense is just to say it doesn't happen, and then, and then the next line is to say we're just misinterpreting Brigham once, 
somebody persist and say, yeah, there's, there's real quotes here and this is how it sounds like, this is what it sounds like, uh, Brother Brigham is teaching. Right. And so can I just talk to you about this whole idea about Brigham Young being misquoted and why it's such a bad argument? Please. You already brought up a really good uh, example, which is it, it would be one thing if it's one incident, one paragraph, one line, one time, as opposed to over and over and over again, multiple times, including in the lecture on the veil, where it's very clear. But the deal is, is that if we're to, to believe that Brigham Young is misquoted, okay, we've got lectures in the Journal of Discourses by him, we've got uh, newspaper articles where sermons are published. Are we really to believe that Brigham Young, the organizer, the manager that he was, is going to give sermons as the president of the church and allow them to go out to the membership of the church in printed form without first reviewing them and correcting them to make sure that they accurately represent what he said? I mean, I'm a lawyer. I write letters all the time for a living. Believe it or not, before I print it off, sign it, mail it. I actually go back and I review the letter to make sure that, I, that it says what I mean it to say. And Brigham Young would do the same thing. Of course he would do the same thing. In fact, in one of his sermons where he's talking about uh, Scripture, he makes reference to that practice. He talks about how his sermons are as good a Scripture as the saints deserve. But he says, uh, my sermons, once I have reviewed them and corrected them, and publish them are as good a scripture as the saints deserve. So in one of his sermons, he actually makes reference to the practice that he did with his sermons, which is a practice we would normally think that, yes, of course he would do. Finally, Brigham Young teaches this for 25 years, and if the sermon had gone out incorrectly, inadvertently, mistakenly, teaching the Adam-God theory, where he didn't mean to do that, he's actually just teaching what current Mormons teach, one might expect that... He would have found out about it, especially considering the ruckus this raised among the saints and even in the Quorum of the Twelve, and he would have published a retraction, a clarification, an article saying, this was wrongly reported, this is what I really mean. There is no record of that ever happening in 25 years, and the reason is because he was not misquoted. Right, and it is a good point to make, and I want to hit on that, but I want to, I want to bring it up again in a moment here as we go through some other ways in which people claim that Brigham is misinterpreted. Would you mind maybe sharing with us some other angles people have presented where they're saying, look, you're, you're reading the text wrong. This is what Brigham Young meant. Well, there's a couple of those. One is very general, okay? One is very general, which is um, once you start getting past the, the first wall of the outright denial, and now you're past the second wall of he was misquoted, and now you're starting to realize, no, he did teach it, and he wasn't misquoted. Now we're starting to deal with the meaning of what he actually said and the meaning of the words. It is very common, and Bruce R. McConkie did this, and I've seen other people do this to say, Brigham Young actually taught different things at different times. At some times, he taught the Adam-God theory. At other times, he taught the current Mormon teaching about Adam and God. And then it's a question of which Brigham Young are you going to believe? That, I think, is a bad argument because, really, Brigham Young was consistent. My reading of Brigham Young is one of complete consistency in teaching the Adam-God theory. But this goes back to the old idea that any time Brigham Young mentions Elohim and Michael or Elohim and Adam as two separate beings present at the same time, then he must be teaching the current teaching of the church and teaching something that's contrary to the Adam-God theory. 
As we covered before, Brigham Young never taught that Adam was Elohim. Brigham Young did teach that Adam was God. And so this perceived inconsistency really isn't there. And it's not a question of which Brigham Young you're going to believe. There's only one Brigham Young to believe on this issue. And the question is whether you're going to believe that one Brigham Young or not. Right. We have to take off our modern Mormon glasses and and not try to hold Brigham to the way in which we frame these words. And when you put Brigham in his own time and, and not use the bias of modern Mormonism, he's not contradicting himself. Not a bit. I've never seen him contradict himself as long as I have been able to do him the dignity of letting him speak for himself. Awesome, awesome. And you said there's a second one as well, another way that someone's tried to misinterpret, yeah. have us think that we're misinterpreting Brigham? There is this uh, theory that's out there by a fellow named Eldon Watson, it's sometimes referred to as the two-atom theory. And it has become, well, a pastime among some hobbyists. Frankly, I did it too, so I'm not going to blame him of trying to come up with some creative way of making what Brigham Young said not contradict what the current leaders of the church teach. And what um, Eldon Watson came up with was uh, sometimes called the two-atom theory. Now, I'm going to tell you something right now, okay? It is a sign and a key to you, my friend Bill, that as soon as you are having trouble with your theology, the easiest way to smooth out the trouble is to create two of the same thing. We see it with two Camorras. We see it with two Isaiases, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, as soon as you've got one thing that is being talked about in two mutually exclusive ways, you just create two of them and your problem goes away. Of course, it raises other problems later. But what his idea is, is that if you've got statements by Brigham Young, which he acknowledges, he's not going to deny it, he's not going to say he's misquoted, he's going to take it as it's written, but if you've got statements by Brigham Young that obviously should refer to Elohim, according to our modern understanding, if you've got statements by Brigham Young talking about Adam, and Adam's doing things that Elohim should be doing, like uh, having spirit children that come to this earth, then what he's going to say is, well, in those cases, Brigham Young is really talking about Elohim. And he creates a new name for Elohim, which is the same name as Adam. So... Adam now becomes a name that Brigham Young uses, according to this theory, when he's talking about Elohim, whenever Elohim uh, is doing things that um, I think <laughs> you may have to undo this one or edit it. But basically, whenever Adam is acting the way Elohim should be acting, then that's actually Elohim, and Brigham Young's calling him Adam. Did that finally make sense? Sure, and we're just we're just giving Elohim a nickname, and, you know... Fathers and sons share common names. My dad's Bill, and I'm Bill, and my son's named Bill as well. Um, it seems like a really easy way to try and reconcile this, but but Corbin, I, I know you know this, and, and it's something that I've kind of thought through as I've been studying this issue for a few years myself, is that you have to deal with Brigham recognizing that his teachings on Adam were making many of the saints uncomfortable and and if this two Adam name idea is, is what we should latch on to, then like you said earlier, Brigham Young could just stand up and give some clarification and go, Hey guys, I know I know I've been teaching this for a lot of years and I know I'm making a lot of you uncomfortable. You're just misunderstanding me. I'm just using the name Adam as if it applies to uh, Elohim's nickname. And I'm just using it as a second way to use the name Adam. It's not the actual Adam who's on the earth. 
he could have resolved it so easy, but he seems to sense that everyone's uncomfortable and he's not going to let them get out of that. And which tells me whatever he's teaching, it's something really hard to swallow. You're right. And I think that's the smoking gun when it comes to the argument that Brigham Young is misunderstood. The people of his day, including Orson Pratt in the Quorum of the Twelve, understood him to be teaching the Adam-God theory, which is why Orson Pratt preached against the Adam-God theory and did it publicly and did it against the president of the church, President Brigham Young, even though Orson Pratt was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. And created a lot of conflict. In fact, Gary Bergera wrote a, a book about this. It's called Conflict in the Quorum. And it talks about the conflict between Orson Pratt and Brigham Young over this issue, as well as some others, but over this issue. So um, you can imagine, I mean, can you imagine that happening today? But what's playing out in Mormonism during Brigham Young's administration is Brigham Young is teaching the Adam-God theory, and he has got Orson Pratt, the senior apostle, out there teaching against it. And he has sent Orson Pratt during a period of time out on a mission over to Washington, D.C. Orson Pratt is in charge of creating a newspaper that's very pro-Mormon, getting the word out about the gospel. It's called The Seer. It's a pretty famous newspaper in terms of Mormon history. And Orson Pratt now on the East Coast is using that opportunity to preach against the Adam-God theory. And as a result of this conflict, Orson Pratt comes within a hair's breadth of being disfellowshipped and losing his position in the Quorum of the Twelve. This is how bad it was. And like you said, at any point, Brigham Young could have just said, what? Oh, you think I'm teaching the Adam-God theory? No, I'm not. I'm teaching the same thing as you. Case closed. Everything would have been solved. But that's not what was going on. Right. And it, and it is maybe of note to recognize that, you know, maybe on some level, Brigham Young is going down to St. George to get out of the presence of Orson Pratt and be able to kind of implement this thing without without Brother Pratt over his shoulder criticizing it. It seems like Brigham's really one of the only members of the Twelve who's down there at this time uh, when the St. George Temple is being kind of opened up and started. And this may have just kind of been a way for Brigham to say, look, I've been teaching this for years and nobody's getting off my back. I'll just go down to St. George and, and put it in down there. Well, um, his putting it into the Lecture at the Veil can certainly be seen as his attempt to solidify and perpetuate his teaching about Adam God in spite of the resistance he was receiving from some other members. And to some extent it works, right? It, it, as at least some evidence indicates it lasts until at least 1904. Yeah. So all totaled over 50 years, if that's correct, that this was being taught in the church. Pretty amazing. Um, are there any other apologetic ideas that we need to float kind of in this section before we give you some space to show us kind of how the churches walk this back? Um, I think that there's, there, are, there are so many arguments against this that apologists have come up with over the years, and unfortunately none of them are any good, mainly because they contradict the fact that this is actually what he taught. One of them I've also heard is um, that uh, really what Brigham Young was teaching was that Adam will be the God of this earth in the resurrection, because everybody's going to be sealed together, and Adam's going to be at the head of that, and there's the whole Adam on Diamon thing, and you know he gets all the keys at the head of the human family, gives them to Jesus. That's all very nice good, and is consistent with current LDS theology, which, by the way, is the whole point, right? 
whatever the apologetic response is, is to make what Brigham Young said consistent with what is taught today. The whole point is to avoid the contradiction. We'll get to the why of that later. But believe me, the stops have been pulled out in every conceivable way to try and keep Brigham Young from contradicting current church leaders. But of course, when getting back to that, saying that Adam will be the god of the human family in the future is a far cry from what Brigham Young was teaching, which is that he's already the god of the human family and has been since the pre-mortal existence and continues to. Right. And, and to your point, I got a little chuckle out of this. If you if you go into Fair Mormon's website where they address the Adam God doctrine, they give you five possible ways to reconcile that. And it's always struck me that whenever you give five answers to something, it really means you don't have one good answer. And and I think this issue is a tough one. I think for apologists and for people trying to defend the church, there's this need, right? You've been pointing this out all along. There's this need to reconcile past teachings with present teachings. And if you just sit back, take Brigham at his word and allow him to speak for himself and 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 not feel compelled to have to reconcile that, then you kind of can lose lose having to force the square peg through the round hole. Yes, and then you can finally understand what he's saying. It's an amazing thing that happened with me. It was like I went from being totally confused by what he was saying to changing my perspective, allowing him to speak for himself, and all of a sudden all of his words resolved into crystal clarity. Right, right. It, it all fits into place the moment you just give Brigham the space to be teaching what the critics are saying that he's teaching. Um, I do, I mean, the, the blog you wrote for Rational Faith, again, you said you did this last year. I, I don't know how I missed it. I came across it a few weeks ago when it got its resurgence. But just a, an amazing article, and I was familiar with many of these quotes, but not all of them. And I just want to give you some some time here. Take as long as you need. I'll interject maybe a few times if I run across something I want to point out. But walk us through this. So Brigham Young teaches it. He implements it at the veil at the St. George Temple. After his death, leaders in the church become more and more. First, they just realize it's controversial and they just don't want to touch it. But as time goes on, leaders begin to want to distance themselves from it. Walk us through how that happens. Maybe just walk us through the history and, and these quotes one by one and help us see how we make this slow transition from a prophet of God teaching one thing to in the very here and now, it, 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 most members would not even know this had even happened. Sure. Well, I will tell you one of the main uh, stepping stones in the process um, of getting away from Brigham Young's Adam God theory was the publication in 1925 by excuse me, in 1925, of a book called Discourses of the Brigham Young by John Widsow, who, of course, was an apostle. And what the one-volume Discourses of Brigham Young was designed to do was to collect statements by Brigham Young and arrange them topically. It's kind of like what they do with the, the current teachings of the presidents of the church manuals in the church. They take all these different statements from here, there, uh, and try and take like everything about repentance, and we're going to put it in one lesson over here, or everything about faith and put it over here. And this is what he did with Brigham Young. Now, when you actually look at what he did, and we'll go into detail on this later, one of the main pro- one of the main purposes appears to have been to scrub the record clean of any reference that Brigham Young made to the Adam God doctrine. So even though uh, John Widsow is quoting from Journal of Discourses and other places where Brigham Young is teaching the Adam-God 
doctrine or the Adam God theory. What he does is he either changes the quote, uh, sometimes without mentioning that he's changing the quote, in order to take away the Adam God problem. So that's why I say that it seems that one of the main purposes of this book was to scrub the record clean of any Adam God stuff. And then it was promoted. Yeah, what, what was the name of the book? Discourses of Brigham Young. I know that it was promoted as this is handy, this is dandy. You don't have to have all 26 volumes of the Journal of Discourses and plow through it and read every sermon by Brigham Young that's in there in order to find out what he said about things. We will do the heavy lifting for you and we'll take the relevant things that he said about each subject and arrange them by chapter topically so that you can read these different excerpts from his sermons in order to find out what he said about different subjects. But when you get to the chapter about the Godhead and Adam, all of a sudden, voila, Adam-God theory is gone. It reminds me of the Brigham Young manual we have had a dozen years ago or so where we're going through the presence of the church and Brigham Young's manual was the very first one we did. And there were so many quotes in that that were, you know, wives turned to wife and, and several other subject areas, including a couple of quotes, I think, connected to the Adam God, where it also was kind of whitewashed and scrubbed over so that people reading it in today's, you know, three hour block during their priesthood lesson would, would walk away thinking that Brigham is absolutely testifying of the exact same theology and gospel that we we believe in today in the church, and yet when those quotes go back to the original sources, that's not necessarily what they were saying. No, that's exactly correct. And that was one of the things that I found out in writing this blog and doing the research on it, is that the cover-up continues to today. It's not just something that was done back in the 50s and the 70s, but it continues today. The church leadership does not want its members to know that Brigham Young taught about the Adam-God theory. Now, that's one thing, okay? That's one thing. I'm not sure that's really the best way to do it. It's not necessarily the way I would do it, but I'm not the president of the church. I'm not calling the shots on that one. But I think it crosses the line when they start monkeying with the quotes in order to take out parts of uh, the Adam-God theory. In other words, parts of the quotes that necessarily imply or teach the Adam-God theory. Take it out of the quote and then present it as if Brigham Young is actually teaching modern Mormon doctrine on the subject. Right, right. So you kind of have this at the beginning and the end of this kind of changing uh, the actual things that Brigham said. Um, you said John Whitstow is like the first person who's tinkering around with this, right? Yeah, John Whitstow uh, was put in charge of doing this collection of Brigham Young's statements. And, you know, this was very popular for quite a while, Discourses of Brigham Young, first published in 1925. I went on my mission in 1979. When I went on my mission... Discourses of Brigham Young was still in publication, and in fact, it was part of the missionary library. Interesting. Um, where do we go from there? So, so Winstow's put in charge of putting this book out. It comes out. It's really popular. Where does the church take the next step to kind of work through this? Well, what I see is, um, let me just take you through a few quotes here, okay? Because it does come up, especially in the 70s. It also comes up in the 50s and 60s. But April Conference, 1975, Von J. Featherstone, he was a very popular speaker and writer uh, when I was uh, joining the church in the late 70s. But here's what he says about the Adam-God theory. He employs a shaming tactic toward anybody who wants to, who learns about the Adam-God theory or who even talks about it. This is what he says. Another case is the one of those who talk about the Adam-God theory. I guess when they are engrossed with all these different theories and things in the church, they don't have time to study faith and repentance. Maybe they ought to get back to basics. And when they understand everything about faith, then they can move on to the next principle. 
this feels like circular reasoning too, right? Because maybe somebody's worked through all the milk in the gospel and now they're wanting to tackle some meat, but the assumption is always that once you've gotten to the meat, that means you haven't dealt appropriately or faithfully with the milk. It, it, it seems like a way to kind of, like you say, shame and judge people even even if they have put their due diligence in. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. <laughs> right, right. So, and then we said, and when they understand everything about faith, then they can move on to the next principle. Well, what's the next principle? Repentance. So, in other words, if you're talking about the Adam-God theory, you need to repent. So that's basically all that he says about it. There's one by Spencer Kimball in 1976, which we've already read, where he brands it as a false doctrine without specifically stating that Brigham Young really didn't teach it. And then Marky Peterson in 1980, and um, he gave, uh, did I mention October General Conference 1980, he gave his one-word opinion of the Adam-God theory which was ridiculous, complete with exclamation point. But at least Elder Peterson, unlike any of the other people who I've quoted so far, actually tried to engage the argument by presenting a reason that he thought Brigham Young could not have taught the Adam-God theory. And frankly, it's, it's, an, it's an argument that I'd never heard before, never read it before in any other place, and there's probably a reason for that because it's extremely weak. The thrust of his position, and I have to synopsize it because he goes on for quite a way, uh, quite a ways, but you can read it in the October General Conference, 1980. The thrust of his position and his argument is that if Adam is God and Adam had numerous sons such as Cain, Abel, and Seth, right, then how could Jesus be considered God's only begotten son? So whatever one thinks of Marky Peterson's argument, it should be noted that really his argument is more with Brigham Young than it is with fringe Mormons. And along those same lines, he closes with this caution in his conference talk. He says, quote, if any of you have been confused by false teachers who come among us, if you have been assailed by advocates of erroneous doctrines, counsel with your priesthood leaders. They will not lead you astray, but will direct you into paths of truth and salvation. Now, I'm sure that Elder Peterson isn't intentionally doing this, but what he's inadvertently accomplishing is by labeling the Adam-God theory, a false teaching, and then warning the membership to be aware of false teachers. He's labeling Brigham Young to be a false teacher. He's labeling Brigham Young to be an advocate of erroneous doctrine. And he's saying that people should counsel with their priesthood leaders. Well, what was Joseph's... <laughs> he's saying that people should counsel with their priesthood leaders. What was Brigham Young but the priesthood leader in the church in his day. Right. And and if this is if this is a false teaching and your priesthood leaders who will take the other side of this this doctrine who will who will push it away and and say it's not of God, if those people will lead you unto uh, truth and salvation, then he's also saying that Brigham Young who was teaching this false doctrine would lead you to untruth and into a loss of salvation. Yes, and these are the kind of knots that the church has managed to tie itself up in over this issue. Right. No, I get it. They're they're throwing past prophets under the bus in order to keep everything fitting in place, but but that provides its own problems. Right. So then June first, nineteen eighty, Bruce R. McConkie, seven deadly heresy speech at BYU. Heresy number six. I feel like Casey Kasem. Heresy number six was Adam God. And this is what he says. The devil keeps this heresy alive. He's talking about the Adam-God theory. The devil keeps 
this heresy alive as a means of obtaining converts to cultism, it is contrary to the whole plan of salvation set forth in the scriptures, and anyone who has read the book of Moses, and anyone who has received the temple endowment, and who yet believes the Adam-God theory does not deserve to be saved. The quote goes on, but I want to stop here for just a second, okay? Can you tell which argument he's using there? Which apologetic argument he's using there? I would I would go with ad hominem, which is to to essentially shame or or make a personal attack on those who think differently than you. You're absolutely right. I'm sorry. I meant one of the ones that we had already covered. What okay. I think, what he's doing is he's doing. There's multiple <laughs> multiple apologetic arguments in this quote. But there's so many, it's hard to keep track. You're right, but uh, not to mention playing the damnation card. Right. By the way, this is really great because now we've got Bruce R. McConkie on record as saying, if you believe the Adam-God theory, you're going to be damned. And you've got Brigham Young saying, if you don't believe the Adam-God theory, you're going to be damned. So this brings it into really stark contrast. But the one I was talking about was where he says, it is contrary to the whole plan of salvation set forth in the scriptures. And anyone who has read the book of Moses and anyone who has received the in-temple endowment should not believe the Adam-God theory. It's the whole, the whole confusion between Adam and Elohim. Once again, getting back to basics, Brigham Young never taught that Adam was Elohim. Brigham Young did teach that Adam was God. The argument behind this is, if you've been to the temple, you know that Elohim and Adam are two separate people, so on earth would you believe the Adam-God theory? Answer, because the Adam-God theory teaches that Adam and Elohim are two separate people. It's just that Adam is God, and Elohim is a higher God. Right, and, and I, this quote bothers me on a lot of levels, this whole idea of the the bolded part you have, which is who yet believes the Adam God theory does not deserve to be saved. I mean, there's a lot of people in this world who who believe different things, and for an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to say that you know you should know better, and the fact that you're not catching on, you don't deserve salvation, seems to just be like one of the most unchristlike things I can I can imagine an apostle of Jesus Christ in terms of not extending charity to others. I hear what you're saying. I, I will double down on that, okay? In Sermons and Writings of Bruce R. McConkie, page 337, he makes it very clear. Here is a list of false doctrines that if anyone teaches, he will be damned. And there is not, okay, teach the Adam-God theory. So there he goes on record as saying, if you teach it, you will be damned. In his Seven Deadly Heresies, he says, if you believe it, you don't deserve to be saved. Right. And, and this, this quote in full, I mean, there's, there's more to this, right? He says, and there is not one of these that I have ever known to be taught in the church, but I'm giving you the list for a perspective because of what will follow. And then he goes on, as you say, teach the Adam God theory, teach that we should practice plural marriage today. Now, any of these are doc, any of those are doctrines that damn. As we'll get into, as you go further along here, what what some of these leaders are saying privately and what they're saying publicly is not only different, they contradict each other. And at some point, you only have two assumptions to make, which is that when the public quotes come out, it must be earlier in their lives and they're just ill-informed and not aware. And when the private quotes come out, that these men obviously have had time to reflect, to look into the sources, and they become more aware but I don't think that bears out in terms of the evidence. What what does bear out, I think, is that these men were trying to portray one apologetic way of reconciling things to the general membership of the church who weren't going to go digging 
and then privately seemed to acknowledge that Brigham really was teaching this stuff and, and their way of reconciling it seems to change once they admit that in their private conversations. Yeah, Brewster McConkie is exhibit A in that, as you know. Um, he was very, very clear in talking about the Adam-God theory as a doctrine that damns. Don't believe it, otherwise you don't deserve to be saved, don't teach it, or you will be damned. And like you said in that second quote, he does go on to say that here is a list of false doctrines. If anyone teaches, he will be damned, and there is not one of these that I have ever known to be taught in the church, including the Adam-God theory. Well, as it turns out, actually he did know that it had been taught in the church, and he did know that Brigham Young had taught the Adam-God theory, and we would never know that by listening to Bruce R. McConkie's sermons or reading his writings. The only reason we know that is because he admitted to it in a personal letter to Eugene England. Yeah, and do you do you have the excerpt there where, where he does acknowledge that? I do. The problem was, of course, that Eugene England was a BYU professor, and he got in Elder McConkie's crosshairs. He wasn't the only one, but because he was teaching things that uh, Brigham Young had taught, or earlier church leaders had taught, teachings that had become discarded, out of favor, did not match the current correlated church teachings. And so they got into it about Adam God, and... Um, I think that Eugene England had responded by saying, well, here's these quotes, you know, where Brigham Young did teach it. And the response from Bruce McConkie is very reeling, by, revealing. Uh, by the way, he wrote a multiple-page letter to Eugene England, and on each and every page is stamped across the front of it that it is confidential, it is private, it is not to be distributed. But even without out the Internet, it managed to get leaked anyway. So in spite of the fact that Bruce McConkie wanted this letter kept completely private and not duplicated, it has entered into the public domain, and I quote from it here. He says this to Eugene England. Yes, President Young did teach that Adam was the father of our spirits. Okay, now hang on a second here. This is a private letter dated February 19, 1981. It was half a year before, on June 1, 1980, that Elder McConkie is listing the Adam-God theory as heresy number six and saying that any who believes it does not deserve to be saved. Now, going on for this quote from the letter to Eugene England, February 19th, 1981. Yes, President Young did teach that Adam was the father of our spirits and all the related things that the cultists, and when he says that, you know, he's talking about the fundamentalist Mormons, all the things that the cultists ascribe to him. So he's saying, Everything that the cultists believe that Brigham Young taught about the Adam-God theory, which is what we've been talking about since the beginning tonight, Elder McConkie is saying, yeah, he knows. President Young taught all of it. And then he goes on to say, this, however, is not true. So he believes that even though Brigham Young taught it, it's not true. He expressed views that are out of harmony with the gospel. So that's uh, Elder McConkie in his letter and, of course, Brigham Young would have thought the same thing about uh, Elder McConkie. But this is Elder McConkie saying that Brigham Young expressed views that are out of harmony with the gospel. And then he says later in the letter, I think you can give me credit for having a knowledge of the quotations from Brigham Young relative to Adam and of knowing what he taught under the subject that has become known as the Adam-God theory. So this is why Elder McConkie had stamped 
all over this letter, confidential, not for public dissemination, because in it, he's going to present the fact and admit that he knew perfectly well that Brigham Young did teach the Adam-God theory, even though in his public persona, saying he didn't. Yeah, it's amazing, and it almost feels like Elder McConkie holding true to the, the stereotype that we've given him of of being this guy in the room who who took pride in having put all the work in and knowing as much as anyone could know about the gospel and about the history of the church. It, it almost got the best of him here. It, feel, it almost seems like he couldn't resist showing his cards to Brother England, even though doing so shows that he contradicted his private beliefs with his public uh, proclamations of his beliefs. Yeah, and so this would be an obvious example the question is always out there. Well, we've got these denials from leaders of the church, whether it's about church history. This is the huge issue now, right? Well, when they were busy denying these unsavory aspects of church history, did they know? Did they actually know the church history when they were denying it? And there seems to be a movement afoot by apologists to say, no, these were ignorant denials. These leaders of the church, they didn't really know that this was the history of the church when they were denying it, whether it's Joseph Smith's treasure digging or Cedar Stones, whatever the uh, polygamy, polyandry whatever the situation may be. But here we have absolute proof that Elder McConkie did know that Brigham Young taught the Adam-God theory and yet publicly denied it. And, and it should be noted here in this very letter, there's also, not only does Elder McConkie show his own uh, hand that he's, that he's got of cards, he also turns one of the cards over of his father-in-law in, in this same letter, right? Isn't there also a sentence in there from... From Elder McConkie, where he he mentions his father-in-law Joseph Fielding Smith, and that what he says about Joseph Fielding Smith also contradicts what President Smith talked about publicly in terms of this issue. Yeah, that was a, a little nugget I stumbled upon as I was examining the letter because Joseph Fielding Smith, as far as I can tell, was the first, if not well, one of the first, if not the first person to start issuing the public denials that Brigham Young ever taught the Adam God theory. And like I had mentioned before, he did this in at least two of his answers to gospel questions, one of which I linked to here in the um, the blog. But he's simply denying that Brigham Young ever taught it. However, Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie are not just general authorities. They're related by marriage. Bruce R. McConkie married Joseph Fielding Smith's daughter. So Bruce R. McConkie is Joseph Fielding Smith's son-in-law. And on page six of Bruce R. McConkie's letter to Eugene England, he mentions conversations that he had had with his father-in-law, Joseph Fielding Smith, about the Adam-God theory. And incredibly, in spite of the fact that Joseph Fielding Smith had been on record publicly denying that Brigham Young ever taught the Adam-God theory, Bruce McConkie inadvertently tips his hand, not only for himself, but also for his father-in-law, and gives us to understand that Joseph Fielding Smith, as well as Bruce R. McConkie, knew perfectly well that Brigham Young did teach the Adam-God theory in spite of their public denials. Here's a quote from the letter. I think you can give me credit for having a knowledge of the quotations from Brigham Young relative to Adam and of knowing what he taught under the subject that has become known as the Adam-God theory. President Joseph Fielding Smith said that Brigham Young will have to make his own explanations on the points there involved, end quote. So here's the question. Why would Joseph Fielding Smith think Brigham Young would have to make his own explanations about the Adam-God theory 
if, as Joseph Smith maintained, and that's Joseph Fielding Smith maintained publicly, Brigham Young never taught the Adam-God theory in the first place. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It It is interesting. I have to wonder if Elder McConkie kind of lost track of which conversations with his father-in-law were just the two of them talking and which ones were his father-in-law expounding in the public arena. And I almost wonder if just for a brief moment there, he mixed up uh, one with the other. I'm not sure. Uh, you may be right. It just seems that for whatever reason, Bruce McConkie is really just being very open, uncharacteristically open in his private correspondence with Eugene England. Of course, he was doing so thinking that this letter would never go further than Eugene England, who was a BYU professor and, of course, could face uh, heavy sanctions, including his job, if he were probably to make it public. But it ended up making it into the, the public discourse. And it seems that Bruce R. McConkie was willing not only to admit that he himself knew what Brigham Young taught, but also that his father-in-law, President Joseph Fielding Smith, knew what jo- Brigham Young taught, in spite of the fact that they publicly claimed that he did not teach it. Isn't there a line out of this letter from Elder McConkie to Eugene England where he says something along the lines of, it is your job to repeat what I say or to remain silent? Oh, what is the line? It's a famous line. It's something about, it's my job to teach a doctrine, it's your job to repeat it, something like that. It's a 10-page letter, but I do have a link to it in the blog. The reason I bring it up is because in some ways that might have been seen by Eugene England as permission, right? You either repeat what I said or you remain silent. And so Brother England just releases the thing so we can re- so he can repeat and let the let the public see exactly what Elder McConkie had said. And in some ways, I kind of find that just irony. It would be ironic, except it's really big and red and on every page about how this is supposed to be confidential and not right, duplicated. Sure. <laughs> sure, but that's a contradicting message. Well, maybe it so, is. And uh, Elder, I think it was Elder Oaks or Elder Bednar said something about picking uh, good, better, or best. <laughs> well, I think this is best. And by the way. I have no uh, understanding or belief that it was actually Eugene England who leaked this letter. I think that somebody else got a hold of it somehow and probably did so. I don't think that he was the one who was uh, releasing it. Right. He may have shared it privately with someone else, and that person may have broken that confidence and released it publicly. We don't know. And so it would be easy to make assumptions, but to probably to steer clear of, of, of who released it and knowing the backdrop of that story. I was just saying, it's like the 116 pages. Once they get out there, you don't know what's going to happen with them. Right, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who knows, right. This isn't the quote, dang it, but people can find it. But here's where he says, I advise you to take my counsel on the matters here involved. And what he's telling him is, quit teaching the stuff I don't want you to teach. I advise you to take my counsel on the matters here involved. If I err, that is my problem. But in your case, if you single out some of these things and make them the center of your philosophy and end up being wrong, you will lose your soul. Wow, that's strong. Yeah, very strong. Strong words. Um, you mentioned at this point, after you've kind of gone through these quotes, you and I love this phrase, and we use it often as progressive Mormons, as we talk about kind of the messiness of Mormonism, about this going down the rabbit hole. And and you kind of finish off then the back half of your, your blog post or your article by kind of walking us through some of the connections that that are being made and and kind of finishing the story of telling us how he leaders of the church kind of walk back Brigham Young's Adam God theory uh, maybe take us through kind of that back half of your your blog post 
and help us connect a few more dots. Okay, I'd be happy to. Um, let's see. Most of the stuff that's in my blog post I already knew from my previous research, but I was really uh, fascinated to find out that I could learn some new things by looking first off at the new uh, or newer Brigham Young Manual Teachings of the Presidents of the Church. I mentioned before that there were a couple of places in there where quotes were taken from Brigham Young and then manipulated in order to not teach the Adam-God theory in favor of teaching the current doctrine. And this gets back to the idea of my saying that we don't just assume that things have always been the same. Steps are actively taken by leaders of the church in the manuals in order to change things to make it look like Brigham Young always taught the same thing we teach today. Let me, um, let me go to the Journal of Discourses here, okay? This is Volume 9, page 148. I want to go to the original quote, which ends up being repeated in modified form in the teachings of uh, Presidents of the Church Brigham Young Manual. I'm just going to try and zero in on the one line. The father frequently came to visit his son Adam and talked and walked with him, and the children of Adam were more or less acquainted with their grandfather, and their children were more or less acquainted with their great-grandfather. Now, that sounds very odd, and the reason it's odd is because it necessarily implicates the Adam-God theory. We're talking about the children of Adam, okay? So Adam is their father, right? But the children of Adam were more or less acquainted with their grandfather. Well, the children of Adam, who's their grandfather? Well, whoever it is, it's Adam's father. Does that make sense? Yeah, here comes Elohim, right? Yes. And their children were more or less acquainted with their great-grandfather. Well, that's why later LDS leaders got really uncomfortable with his teaching for lots of reasons. It doesn't mesh with just standard Christianity, and, and for a church that's trying to fit in and having been persecuted for so long, it, it certainly hurts that cause. But on the other hand, you start getting this deep on stuff, and it it just makes it really difficult to to uh, put out a message that applies to just the average person looking for a church to find. It does. And, you know, really, it, it seems deep, and it is in some ways only because it's unfamiliar to a lot of people. But if I've got my dad and my granddad, and we're all living in the house with my kid, and I say that my kids grew up and they knew not only me, but they also knew their grandfather and their great-grandfather, nobody would have any problem with understanding what I'm talking about. Right, and I should be clear, I don't necessarily mean deep in the sense that this is difficult to explain. Rather, that for someone who's used to standard Christianity, it's going to cause a, there's going to be, have to be some really deep changes in how one understands the gospel of Jesus Christ and that kind of theology to be able to adapt over to Mormonism. And I hear you 100% because, you know, even as a Mormon, this was blowing my mind. So the Journal of Discourses quote, volume 9, page 148, just the one sentence, the father frequently, this is Brigham Young speaking, the father frequently came to visit his son Adam and talked and walked with him. Now, all of that's uh, very consonant with current Mormon doctrine, but Brigham Young goes on. And the children of Adam were more or less acquainted with their grandfather. Okay, now who's that talking about? Well, it's talking about Elohim. So according to Brigham Young, the children of Adam are related to Elohim. He's their grandfather. Now, under current Mormon doctrine, they would not have that relationship with Elohim. Only under the Adam-God theory would the children of Adam be related to Elohim as their grandfather. Does that part make sense? And then it goes on to say the same thing in a little bit different language. It says, um, 
the children of Adam were more or less acquainted with their grandfather, and their children were more or less acquainted with their great-grandfather. So once again, emphasizing that Elohim is the father of Adam. His children are Elohim's grandchildren, or in other words, he's their grandfather. And Adam's children, children, are related to Elohim because he is their great-grandfather. This necessarily implicates the Adam-God theory, which is why when this quote was made in the recent manual, Teachings of the Presence of the Church, they took that whole clause out and just replaced it with the word him. So it's easier to see on the blog, but let me go ahead and read it once again as it was originally given. And the children of Adam were more or less acquainted with their grandfather, and their children were more or less acquainted with their great-grandfather. All the stuff about grandfathers is taken out, and just the word him is replaced, H-I-M. So it says, and the children of Adam were more or less acquainted with him. So the quote has not only been edited in that entire clause taken out, but another word has been put in there that was not in the original, with no indication that the quote had been tampered with. You know, this this strikes me, Corbin. So you've probably seen these clips where they take, you know, President Obama, for instance, and they cut out various words that he says and turns it into him singing some pop culture song. And in some ways, right, it's just funny, but we also realize that it's not in any way, I mean, obviously it's used for humor, but it's not in any way true to that person's words. And it, it feels like here, I mean, the church, I think, I think the apologetic argument is that we're, we're certainly wanting Brigham Young's words to be used to teach the gospel as we know it in the very here and now. But I think that sidesteps the issue, which is that we're being deceptive. When we, when we take Brigham Young and he is saying, teaching, stating, imposing one thing, and we change what he is saying by cutting and clipping and editing and rephrasing and changing the order of things, which by the way, we criticize the critics like crazy when they do. And yet we do this to bring him young. And by the time we're done, we have him teaching something completely different than the intentions of what he was saying in the moment. And I think when we do that, I, at least in my mind, I have no choice but to say that is being deceiving. And, and I think the church should hear that loud and clear because they've been accused of it in the past. And, and again, the church and its, and the, its defenders are the first ones. And I've done it too. jump on the critics for doing the same thing, for taking quotes out of place, for putting, you know, ellipsis in and not quoting the full quote. And yet here we are doing the very same thing. And in, in some ways, probably just as guilty as those folks. Yeah, this is even worse than ellipses because there are ethical ways to use ellipses and unethical ways to use ellipses. But the very presence of the ellipses shows that there is material that has been omitted from the quote. So a person can go back to the source, see what it said. This is really bad because not only is there no ellipses, in other words, no indication that the quote has been modified, it actually takes a whole clause out and then replaces it with a word that was never in the quote with no indication that it's been monkeyed with. Which completely changes the intended meaning that Brigham Young had versus the intended meaning the church wants you to get from it. Yeah, I think it bears uh, emphasis that this is not just, oh, this is kind of a long clause, so we'll just put him in there. It's intentionally done to take out the Adam-God component and make it so that it's consistent with what the church currently teaches. It's a cover-up. Any thoughts from you on why they just didn't avoid these quotes altogether? 
I mean, it seems like Brigham Young wrote enough stuff that they could have just stayed away from these quotes completely and focused more on, you know, having a difference, you know, having, having one not about necessarily the Godhead and have a different chapter on how to better take care of your family. Well, I can't read their minds, but I will tell you that when I was researching this blog and thinking about this, I thought, well, let me look at the, the recent manual about Brigham Young's teachings because I've read Brigham Young enough to know that it's hard for them to quote anything that he says about God without some reference to Adam being, you know, close behind because it was so constantly taught by him. And as it turned out, that was the case here because here's the one quote that they're quoting in uh, the manual where they have to change it in order to make it consistent with current teaching. And then there was another one. There was another one which was really interesting that they used. And you, am I, I'm taking it you're going to look for this part where Joseph Fielding Smith uses the altered version? Yeah, that's another thing that I discovered. And to tell you that story, I have to tell you this story, which is why I brought up the Discourses of Brigham Young from 1925 that John Whitsoe compiled. What the manual does, and when I say the manual, I mean the new manual with uh, President Brigham Young, Teachings of the Presidents, that quotes this in its altered form. The manual writers did not do the altering. It was John Whitsoe who did the altering of the original statement to change it from its original intended meaning. This is why I conclude that one of the purposes of the Discourses of Brigham Young, one volume collection of Brigham Young sayings, 1925, was to scrub the record of Adam God because here, John A. Whitsoe is shown to be manipulating and changing the quotes in order to remove the Adam-God components and make it sound like current Mormon doctrine. So the manual, the new manual, quotes to Discourses of Brigham Young for all of these quotes. But in the Discourses of Brigham Young, John Whitsoe, even though he's playing fast and loose with the quotations from Brigham Young, at least scrupulously at the end of every quote, and there's a number of them on every page, he scrupulously puts the references. So he'll put JD for Journal of Discourses, then volume and the page number. And that's how I was able to backtrack this from the new manual to Discourses of Brigham Young and then to look at the actual original version of it in the Journal of Discourses to see what it is that's being quoted. And that's how I was able to find this out. I thought for a while, well, maybe the people who wrote the manual should be given some slack because... You know, they're just citing to Discourses of Brigham Young, where the quote had already been changed by Widso. But then I thought, you know, I'm no historian, and I was able to figure this out in less than half an hour. So really, um, I have a hard time believing that they don't know what the Journal of Discourses originally said, especially since John A. Widso gives them the reference right after the quote. Okay, so having said all that, this doctored quote, <laughs> the same doctored quote where they take out the whole clause about grandfather and great-grandfather and just put him in there, assumes a life of its own because it becomes valuable, apparently, as an instance in which Brigham Young teaches the normal, orthodox, current Mormon doctrine about God. Of course, he only teaches it after it's been doctored, but... But in, in one of those, then that Joseph Fielding Smith answers to gospel questions. I think it's actually in volume five. These were all assembled and published in different volumes in 1966. Originally, they were independent articles in the improvement era. But Joseph Fielding Smith, in response to a question about Adam God, first off, 
denies that Brigham Young taught it. And then he says, now look, there are other places where Brigham Young obviously taught what we currently believe. So let's stop this nonsense about anybody saying that he taught Adam God. Guess what is number one in the quotes that Joseph Fielding Smith uses to prove that Brigham Young did not teach the Adam God theory? It's the same quote. He quotes the doctored quote from Discourses of Brigham Young, which originally showed that Brigham Young was teaching the Adam God theory, quotes it in its doctored form in answers to gospel questions in order to prove that Brigham Young never taught the Adam God theory. That's how twisted and complicated this becomes. Yeah. So the other quote that I really loved from the new manual about Brigham Young, I was shocked by this. And here's what happened, all right? I just went to look at what was in the section in the manual called Father in Heaven, because obviously when Brigham Young's talking about Father in Heaven, he's talking about somebody different than what most Mormons today are thinking of when they're talking about Father in Heaven. And I found out that, uh, here's the quote, okay? Our Father in Heaven begat all the spirits that ever were, or ever will be, upon this earth. And they were born spirits in the eternal world. Then the Lord, by his power and wisdom, organized the mortal tabernacle of man. We were made first spiritual, and afterwards temporal. Okay? Nothing to see here. That's standard Mormon doctrine. The reference in the manual is to DBY, page 24. And DBY is Discourses of Brigham Young. I pull up Discourses of Brigham Young, page 24, to find this reference, which cites to Journal of Discourses. And I was quite surprised to find that the citation for this quote is Journal of Discourses, Volume 1, page 50. And as I said some hours ago when we began this conversation, that is a very famous citation in the Journal of Discourses because it's the 1852 sermon where Brigham Young first teaches the Adam-God theory. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? They, are they actually quoting from his most famous pronouncement about the Adam-God theory in the new manual to try and show that all he taught was just what we believe today? And what I found was even more amazing. This quote that they put in the manual that I just read to you, which is just standard Mormon doctrine, no problem here, nothing unusual, actually occurs immediately before his pronouncement of the Adam-God theory. If I were to read it to you in order, it's that first quote, I won't read that whole quote again, um, where, where he ends, we were made first spiritual and afterwards temporal, and here's the very next sentence and paragraph. Now hear it, O inhabitants of the earth, Jew and Gentile, saint and sinner. When our father Adam came into the Garden of Eden, he came into it with a celestial body and brought Eve, one of his wives, with him. He helped to make and organize this world. He is Michael, the archangel, the ancient of days, about whom holy men have written and spoken. He is our father and our God, and the only God with whom we have to do. Every man upon the earth professing Christians, or non-professing, must hear it and will know it sooner or later. So here's the amazing thing about this. In an attempt to demonstrate Brigham Young's orthodoxy, the manual lifts this one snippet from the most famous Adam-God discourse on record. And the manual makes no mention of the fact that when Brigham Young says, our Father in heaven begat all the spirits that ever were upon this earth, he's talking about Adam. Just a sleight of hand. I mean, it, it, 
it, I, I can, you know, I completely see as you've delved into this issue why this begins to get frustrating and that there's no option other than to say, look, what's going on here is just not, not on the up and up in terms of, of history, in terms of, uh, being honest about what past leaders have said and what they've taught. And I, I just think, you know, the church I know in the last half, you know, half, dozen years have come out with several comments that they're trying to be more transparent. There's there's this indication that it's time that we just lay the history on the table, but that in itself acknowledges in the past that we didn't, that we were less transparent and we didn't lay things on the table, and this issue points directly at it. I don't think they have an essay about the Adam-God theory yet, do they? No, there's no essay on the Adam-God theory. Um, I don't know how they would work through that without acknowledging that he taught it and he was just wrong. Yeah, I don't know how they would address it. They'd probably end up like Fair did by giving different options. Right, five five possible answers with none of them holding water. It's kind of like what they did with the Book of Abraham essay. Right, gave you lots of options, but every one of them, when taken to their logical end, doesn't work. Right. We've got this. We've got them doing this over and over again. Um, are there any other blatant examples or... Where do you want to take us from here? Um, you know, I didn't write about it in my blog, but I was wanting and preparing for this interview to come up with a brief authoritative statement about Brigham Young teaching the Adam-God theory. And I thought, where better to look than the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, which was published uh, by the LDS Church back in 1992. I don't know if you have a copy of it. And I looked it up. What I looked up was, volume one, looked up Adam God, and Adam God says, see, teachings of Brigham Young, under the article about Brigham Young. So I put up volume one, I get volume four out, I look up the teachings of Brigham Young, and I find three pages of different teachings, it's just highlighting an overview, and only one of the paragraphs deals with the Adam God theory. And this is what it says. Brigham Young recognized that many people were not prepared to understand the mysteries of God and Godhood. Quote, I could tell you much more about this, he said, speaking of the role of Adam, but checked himself, recognizing that the world would probably misinterpret his teaching. Reference, Journal of Discourses, Volume 1, page 51. That is it. That's all that's said about it. And I went back and I thought, 151, what on earth are they talking about? Once again, this is his most famous utterance and his first public utterance of the Adam-God theory. And I looked at it, and after saying everything we've read before about he is our Father and our God, the only God with whom we have to do, every man upon the earth must hear it and will know it sooner or later. Then, And he also says... We haven't read this part yet. When the Virgin Mary conceived the child Jesus, the Father had begotten him in his own likeness. He was not begotten by the Holy Ghost. And who is the Father? He is the first of the human family. And when he took a tabernacle, it was begotten by his Father in heaven. And then finally he gets down here and he says, I could tell you much more about this. I mean, he's told us an awful lot already, I think you'll admit. But he says, I could tell you much more about this. But were I to tell you the whole truth, blasphemy would be nothing to it in the estimation of the superstitious and overrighteous of mankind. However, I have told you the truth as far as I have gone. That's from the sermon. And yet, that's the only thing. That's the line that this article 
in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, Volume 4, page 1610, has to be referencing when it says that Brigham Young realized many people not prepared to understand this and quotes him only. The only thing they quote him is saying, I could tell you much more about this. But he checks himself, recognizing the world would probably misinterpret his teaching. That has got to be about the most misleading article about Brigham Young's teaching of the Adam-God theory that I've ever read. Do we know who the author of this particular section in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, who this was written by? Hugh Nibley. Wow. So does it say his name like at the beginning of that section? No, it's at the end. Every single article that occurs in most encyclopedias, including this one, has the author's name at the end. And at the end of this, it's Hugh W. Nibley, which is crazy because nobody knew Brigham Young. Like Hugh Nibley knew Brigham Young. Nobody knew Mormon history at that moment than than Hugh Nibley. And it, it, it does seem like of the one guy you're expecting to not pull those kinds of punches, I would have guessed Hugh Nibley would not do that. And yet here we've got him obfuscating and misdirecting to the nth degree. And, and, and you know, I, I should at least say, to be fair and balanced, I think the Encyclopedia of Mormonism is a great work. I think it is so honest about issues in its day that the rest of Mormonism didn't even want to talk about. And I think it's actually fair and balanced in so many areas. And yet, for whatever reason, in this area of, of Adam God, Hugh Nibley, the greatest scholar in the church of his day, seems to obfuscate and misdirect us on this issue. It just it just seems it's crazy to even fathom that. That's why I went to it as a source for a concise statement, really setting forth the facts, and was shocked to find that even in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, the cover-up continues. And on behalf of Hugh Nibley, um, I will say that whatever he wrote had to get by the editors. Right, so this may not have been his... Uh his first go-around at trying to, to explain this in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, it may have gone back to the drawing board. Right, and it may have been improved upon by the editors, because frankly, between you and me and whoever's listening, I think that Hugh Nibley is pretty well known for having made statements or writing a few things here and there, which indicate that he was kind of on board with the whole Adam-God thing anyway. Right, gotcha. Gotcha, but that also makes him a perfect candidate to be the guy who steps up and does, in a sense, kind of a denial, because if you're going to take anybody seriously, you'd take Hugh Nibley seriously. Right, and so here we end up with the question, which is the $64 question, why? I think it's really clear, and I think we've gone over it in good detail tonight. There can be no question that there's been a cover-up, and there's been no question that the church has gone to rather extreme lengths to perpetuate this cover-up. And by cover-up, all I mean is to do whatever is necessary in order to try to prevent members from knowing that Brigham Young taught the Adam-God theory. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and I, and I want to ask you, what do you, you're just your own two cents. Obviously, none of us know what goes on in, in these rooms where these kinds of discussions take place, and none of us know what kind of direction is handed down to the Correlation Committee and other, other committees. But what do you think is at the root of this? Is it is it just not wanting to have a public admittance that a past prophet got it really, really wrong? Yes. And here's what I see is happening with the timing. First off, um, Greg Prince in his book, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, documents that up until the time of David O. McKay, Joseph Smith was seen as the prophet. There were presidents of the church after him, but only Joseph Smith was considered to be the prophet. 
during the time of David O. McKay's administration, which I believe was from 1950 to 1970, um, that changed. And the perception of the saints and the teachings of the church and the way they portrayed David O. McKay was now that he was the prophet. He wasn't just the president of the church. Now he was considered to be the prophet. That sounds strange to, to us today who have pretty much grown up in every generation or with every president of the church being considered the prophet. But apparently it wasn't that way before David O. McKay. So now we have David O. McKay being the prophet. He becomes the president of the church in 1950. This transition takes place. Now, there's a difference here, okay? And this is an important difference. It's one thing for a president of an organization to disagree with another president, either before him or after him. That's not that big a deal. But when you change the way you view things, is that the president is actually the prophet of God. And by the way, once the perception was changed during David O. McKay's administration that he was the prophet, it was also changed that every prior president was a prophet of God. So now we've got Joseph Smith being a prophet, Brigham Young being a prophet, underline, boldface, exclamation points, John Taylor, Wilfred Woodruff, and so on, up to the present day where we've got uh, Thomas S. Monson, who has testified, uh, he's the prophet. He's God's prophet. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, because I'm talking common Mormon uh, current parlance. But now that Brigham Young has been made into a prophet of God who receives the word of God directly from God by revelation, it's binding, it's authoritative upon the church. Now we've got a problem because now we've got a prophet of God by the name of Brigham Young teaching things directly contradictory to current prophets of God. And this is why I think that the denials that Brigham Young ever taught the Adam-God theory do not seem to begin until the 1950s and 1960s, because it's not until that time period that now we have dueling prophets. Before that, Brigham Young was just a president of the church, just like the current president of the church, and Joseph Smith was the prophet. So I think that that may fit in to that timeline. It's also handy that by the 1950s and 60s, pretty much everybody who was alive to hear Brigham Young teach the Adam-God theory was gone from the scene. So that may have played a part into it as well. But that's one of the big reasons why is because, the ch because of the church's current view on prophets and their role and the teachings about prophets and their role in Revelation. It is unthinkable from the current LDS perspective to have two prophets teaching contradictory things. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. And I, I know that Brigham Young is on the record as saying, you know, I'm not a prophet like Joseph Smith. I'm just a Yankee guesser. And and he seemed to lower that bar a little bit. And I know he also has quotes where he says anything I say once it's approved, you know, it's scripture. You mentioned that one earlier. And and he says things like that from time to time as well. But but it seems like in in his in his humble moments, Brigham Young indicated that he wasn't the prophet in the way that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And and I certainly have done some, you know, historical studying of this issue to where I agree with you early on there was this idea that the president of the church was just the president of the church and sure there was still some inspiration there and the ability to have a revelation. But it was almost like the church went out of its way to say Joseph Smith is a certain type of prophet, like Moses, Noah and Abraham, and then the guys who come after, they're kind of a lower bar kind of prophet. And, and that, that kind of distinction 
had they kept it, probably would have prevented this from being a serious issue. And as you point out, now that now that we are in the role of calling uh, our the president of the church prophet, seer, and revelator, we sustain all members of the quorum of the twelve as prophets, seers, and revelators. Since they've done that, it's it's one of these things where now the conversations are much more private. There's not any kind of disagreement outside of those rooms, even though all of us know it goes on inside the room. There's kind of a protection of making sure they look unified. And I think all of this is an offshoot of the very issue you're talking about, that the moment you say these guys are talking to God and they talk to God in the way Moses, Noah, and Abraham did, then we certainly can't have them contradicting each other. Right. And can I tell you one other way that I look at this? Because I think this was a hugely transitional moment in Mormonism involving the Adam-God theory and a couple other things that Brigham Young taught, which were a bit off the beaten path. But he ends up being challenged on it by Orson Pratt. And what we have here, and Gary Bergera goes into this um, very insightfully, I think, which is this isn't just about the Adam-God theory. This is about two completely different versions of Mormonism. Brigham Young sees himself as the successor to Joseph Smith in all of his prophetic insight, revelation, and ability to teach with authority new doctrine to the church. Not necessarily contradictory doctrine, but expanding upon, building upon. And that's the Adam-God theory. And I think that Brigham Young expected everybody to treat what he taught the same way that he treated what Joseph Smith taught, and what basically everybody treated what Joseph Smith taught. And I think that he was disappointed and frustrated in the fact that his new revelations were not treated the same way that Joseph Smith's revelations and teachings were received, and that he received resistance and pushback even from members of, or a particular member, of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles, as well as others. I think that that is why, in his first public announcement of it in 1852, he comes across guns blazing. He could not be more powerful in what he says. And I think it also accounts for why later on in his career, when he brings it up, there are occasions, like you said, well, I'm just a Yankee guesser, or uh, sort of downplaying um, maybe the revelation that he claimed when he first announced it. And yet, behind the scenes, making sure that it was instituted in the lecture at the Vale in the St. George Temple, so it would be enshrined there. But what goes on here is that because of this, Brigham Young, well, basically, Brigham Young finds out the church really isn't interested in having a prophet at the head of the church like Joseph Smith anymore. And that experiment, his attempt to be a second Joseph Smith, goes down in flames, and ever since Joseph Smith, we haven't had another prophet like Joseph Smith. What we've had is uh, managers, administrators, and that's really all that they are ever since then. So that was a huge turning point, I think, in Mormonism. Instead of a dynamic uh, prophet who receives revelation, we just get an administrator who repeats what has been said before. Yeah, and and we could go off in a thousand different directions of how that impacts the church today, but I think for most people listening, they are going to grasp a lot of those those directions that that goes off into. Um, Corbin, anything else that we want to add to this? Um, I, we're, you and I have been talking now for about two and a half hours, but I'm guessing when this is all cleaned up and ready to go, it'll it'll be somewhere around the two hour and fifteen minute mark or so, um, which which is I think a little long for listeners, but 
this has been such an interesting topic, one that I've thought about from the moment I investigated the church, and I've always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to do an episode on the Adam-God theory, but I never had kind of somebody I could just talk with for a while and hit on all of these points, and you've done it so good. We've laid out the history. We've laid out you know, what kind of evidence we have that Brigham Young did this, uh, the St. George Temple. We've talked about um, the apologetic ways to respond to it, which I find interesting because those all applied to me when I was early on in my, my membership in the church. And then we've gone through kind of how the church has tried to walk this back and some of the repercussions from that. Um, any other thoughts on this that are important that the listener needs to know, That any other dots to connect or any other things that you think are of vital importance to someone having a well-rounded understanding of, of what's going on here? Well, there are just a couple things, and I'll try and keep it brief. By the way, thank you so much for having me on your program. It's been a real pleasure. No, it's been this. You have helped me knock one of my topics off the bucket list, and uh, I'm just I'm really excited to see this one get out and people have a chance to really understand in depth what's going on here. Well, thank you. I will tell you, we talked about one reason that the Adam God theory is what I refer to as theological nitroglycerin. And that's because now we have dueling prophets, and therefore the denials that Brigham Young ever taught it. Because as long as we're denying it, and as long as people aren't going any deeper, then we don't run into that problem with the conflicting prophets. The second thing, though, which is equally as problematic, is the connection between the Adam-God theory and polygamy. You will notice that in some of these denials that we have quoted, the link between the Adam-God theory and polygamy is made express. And one of the things I'm looking for right now is the teaching by Bruce R. McConkie. Yes, right after he says in Seven Deadly Heresies, heresy number six, 1980, he says, uh, anybody who believes the Adam-God theory does not deserve to be saved. Then he says, those who are so ensnared reject the living prophet and close their ears to the apostles of their day. We will follow those who went before, they say, and having so determined, they soon are ready to enter polygamous relationships that destroy their souls. It's also why in sermons and writings of Bruce McConkie, where we quoted about anybody who even teaches the Adam-God theory will be damned. He also mentions uh, amongst his list of things that if you teach, you're going to get damned. Teach the Adam-God theory right after it is teach that we should practice plural marriage today. Now, any of those are doctrines that damn. The reason that there's a connection is because, as history played out, basically any fundamentalist uh, polygamous sect is going to believe the Adam-God theory. It's part and parcel of it. It goes together. And the reason it goes together is because Brigham Young taught it, they know he taught it, and they believe, generally speaking, that... Uh, everything was fine and hunky-dory, and Joseph Smith was a prophet, and Brigham Young was a prophet, and John Taylor was a prophet. But uh, things went wrong with Wilford Woodruff because he discontinued polygamy, thereby becoming a fallen prophet. The church is in apostasy, and they are carrying on the true torch as they see it by continuing to practice plural marriage, correct? Okay, so they all believe Brigham Young was a true prophet. Therefore, Brigham Young was correct in teaching the Adam-God theory, therefore, all these polygamists, uh, fundamentalists, believe the Adam-God theory. That's why there is a connection made in these leaders' quotes between the belief in the Adam-God theory and the practice of polygamy. What I think is that the church is not doing itself any favors with these denials. Because what's happening 
with the polygamous is they're saying their their usual spiel, which I just said to you, which is, you know, the church went off the rails with Wilfred Woodruff, and then they'll quote to the 1886 revelation by John Taylor four years before the manifesto, where he says, you know, we're always going to practice polygamy, and nothing's ever going to happen that's going to take it off the earth. And they say, polygamy is correct. You, Mormon, should come and join us because we're the true Mormons. Now, that's one argument to make, but that argument is only made stronger when they say, we can show you that the church is also in apostasy because not only do they not teach the true doctrine of the Adam-God theory, they deny that Brigham Young ever taught it. And look right here. They're lying. Brigham Young taught it. And I just can't help but think that that gives them a leg up because people say they're lying about the Adam-God theory. Well, who says they're right about renouncing plural marriage? So it seems like, to me, I can see how these denials actually work against the church. They're denying it in order to try and keep people from going into the polygamous uh, fundamentalist groups, and yet they're setting the stage. They're setting them up like bowling pins to get knocked over when they find out that they're lying about their denial about Brigham Young teaching Adam God, and therefore making it more likely that they will join the polygamous fundamentalist groups. Yeah, you're right. When you combine the 1886 revelation and the church's dismissing of that with the misdirecting on Adam God at every twist and turn, all you're doing is giving ammunition to the FLDS to say, look, look, look at these guys. They've gotten off track. And you're, you're right. You just add to their credibility. So that's why I think that this is just a very, very hot potato for the church. And they have a lot of difficulty admitting it. They find all sorts of reasons to deny it. But I think that ultimately... It's probably the best policy, just to be honest about it. It's going to be the most effective. And I've had a friend who says, you know, the hymn, Oh, Say What is Truth, in the LDS hymn book. Uh, my friend says that there's a reason there's a question mark after that sentence. <laughs> in the hymn book, it's a question. Oh, say, what is truth? Because sometimes right, the way it, the leadership it's, acts, it's like they don't have a yeah. freaking clue. It's hard to figure it out. <laughs> do you think, Corbin, do you think, like, we could just make a ton of progress on all of this messiness. And I use that word so much, but it, it, we could just make so much progress if we could just come out and whether it be the race and priesthood, Adam, God, 1886, just come out and say, you know what? Yeah. If God's going to talk to us, he's going to do it through the prophet. But guys, we make a lot of mistakes. We get a lot of things wrong. It, it just seems like there's this real, urge to hang on to the authority that comes from the general membership thinking that these men talk to Jesus on a regular basis. And there's this hesitancy for them to kind of let go of that kind of following. And, and I get it for some, in some ways that's Mormonism's strong point too. But by coming out and saying, look, man, we, we just, we goof a lot of things up. Jesus isn't talking to us every day. We're doing the best we can. We're just, we're 15, you know, good people trying to make the right decisions, and, and sometimes we get off track. It seems like that kind of an admittance would let all of this other side stuff just, like, vanish in the, you know, snap of a finger. Are you suggesting that the leaders of the church should do what they tell all the members of the church that they're supposed to do in order to go to the temple, which is to be honest in all their dealings with their fellow men? Yeah, let's just be honest and transparent. You got it. You got it. Just just do what you're asking others to do. 
So one other point after that, uh, that is just this, okay, because this is going to be complete. This is going to be the go-to source for anybody who wants to learn about the atom-god theory and the different permutations and the different issues related to it, okay? So here's the last thing, um, is that interestingly, the atom-god theory is still with us because there are elements of the atom-god theory that sort of got cut out and perpetuated, and you still hear them every now and again. The first one, which you will hear every now and again, is the idea about God the Father coming to Mary in person and having sexual relations with her in order to produce the body of Jesus. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard it on, I think there's a couple of quotes that kind of hit at that uh, idea. Yeah, and uh, Talmadge dances around the issue in Jesus the Christ without coming out and saying it, but it's obvious what he's saying. And Bruce R. McConkie does the same thing in either his mortal messiah series and or Mormon doctrine, and you'll hear it in other places. But the deal is this. That's part and parcel of the Adam-God theory, because that's another thing that Brigham Young says in a quote we didn't get into, which is that Adam came to Mary and with her conceived the body that would be Jesus Christ. So when it's taught today or inferred today or implied today, we're talking about Elohim, but it comes from a teaching from Brigham Young, where it was actually originally Adam. So that's one way in which the Adam-God theory is with us late and soon. Another one comes up with a question that we often banner about in church meetings, which is, does Adam have a belly button? Have you ever heard that question asked? Yeah, and I've heard people answer that both ways. Right. The question itself is aimed at the Adam-God theory. Does Adam have a belly button? Which is asking, do you believe that Adam was created out of the dust of the earth, like Orson Pratt believed and taught? Or do you believe that Adam was actually begotten and born as a child at some place to somebody and had somebody as his father, which is what Brigham Young taught? If you believe what Orson Pratt taught, Adam doesn't have a belly button. He was created out of the dust of the earth. If you go with the Adam-God theory, well, then he does have a belly button because he was begotten and born. So it's an interesting thing. A lot of times people don't realize what that is actually getting at. But that's what it's getting at. Was Adam an exalted being, having been begotten, resurrected, gone on to his exaltation with the belly button? And then was he the god of this earth, having had the spirit children with his wife Eve in the pre-mortal existence and coming down to begin the process by which they could have mortal bodies, as Brigham Young taught? Interesting. And I, man, I bet there's got to be several other little tangents that we could go on that would talk about how this also still impacts our theology today. I'm sitting here thinking about the idea that we'll be, you know, gods over planets someday. And, and in some ways that theology is very much, it's, it's kind of the forward direction of our theology, but Adam God is kind of the backward looking back and trying to figure out how those things got to that point. Adam God kind of plays into that. It's, it's interesting. You're right. We can't completely unravel or untie this knot that in some ways Adam God is still impacting our theology today. It is interesting too. You know, Elder McConkie speculated that it was Michael who visited uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That kind of connection when you mesh McConkie and, and Young together who disagreed with each other on this issue, obviously. But when you mesh the Adam God with, with McConkie's ideas together, you've got Adam, Jesus's father being the one who visits him in the garden of Gethsemane to, to comfort him. And 
there's so many directions we can go on that I think most Mormons would be like, mm, I'm not really comfortable with that. I don't really, and, and again, it's, it's just working from our present view of what Mormonism is today and, and not really being comfortable with this theology that Brigham Young is, is, is teaching and imposing. And it's also neat too. I'm just, I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking as we're kind of wrapping up this idea that Brigham Young says you need to accept my Adam God doctrine. Otherwise at the peril of your own salvation, if you turn it away, and then you've got McConkie on the other hand saying that if you follow Brigham Young's false doctrines, your salvation is at peril. And and then the rest of us are left in the middle yeah. trying to figure <laughs> out which prophet, seer, and revelator we obey because either way there's a risk of our salvation being in jeopardy. Oh, absolutely. It's a it's an incredibly important choice. It's the single most important choice we could possibly make. It's O. Henry's story about the lady or the tiger. Which door are we going to open? Is it going to be a beautiful lady or is it going to be a tiger? But you got to open one. Right. Uh, I think these these two disagreeing prophets, seers, and revelators almost place us in a lose-lose position. Um, but that's the story of Mormonism, right? That's that's we get people often say. I just wrote a blog post today, uh, Corbin, where I say Mormonism is a cafeteria Mormon, and, and what I mean by that is Mormonism contradicts Mormonism and. Often you'll hear people say that you don't, you really can't be a cafeteria Mormon. And yet I'm, I'm suggesting that all of us are, that once we recognize the history that Brigham Young and Elder McConkie are disagreeing, that Spencer W. Kimball and Elder and Brigham Young are disagreeing, when, when current prophets are disavowing the teachings of past prophets, you just realize you have no choice. Even as faithful and orthodox as you want to be, you have no choice but to be a cafeteria Mormon. And I think if anything we get out of just talking about this today is to realize that this isn't all, you know, the gospel hasn't been the same from the beginning to the end. There's a lot of room for variation and maybe just to give a little more space for those struggling to say, yeah, it's messy and don't feel like you just have to cling with a death grip to some orthodox belief that just simply just doesn't hold up. Like find your own way and be more at peace. Yes, you're right. And this is a good illustration of things changing over Time. Just because something is the way it is now does not mean it is always going to be that way any more than the Adam-God theory taught by Brigham Young 150 years ago is what is taught today. One other way that the Adam-God theory is still with us, and I, I know it's late, it's later there where you are than it is here, and I'm already starting to get punch drunk, but 14 fundamentals, Ezra Taft Benson, living prophets trump dead prophets. Remember that yeah, one? He's hitting on that directly. Yeah. There's only one reason that that would have to be one of his fundamentals. And that's if a dead prophet contradicts a living prophet. Right, right. And and, and that other fundamental, too, I think it's maybe a number 11 or 7 or something on his list where you follow the prophet even if he's wrong and you'll be blessed for it. And yet in the very issue he's trying to speak at, which is these contradicting prophets and specifically the Adam-God theory, Elder McConkie's correspondence with Eugene England um, the comment that Elder McConkie makes is that if you follow a prophet when he's wrong, you do so to the detriment of your own salvation, which is the polar opposite of following him Following him if he's wrong and you'll be blessed for it. it there's just so much contradiction in Mormonism. My, my fear is that people will just let go of the whole thing and just walk away. My hope is that people can take this and learn from it and say, look, man, this this gets messy. There's contradictions here. I'm going to set aside that which I can't reconcile, that which does not bring me closer to Christ, and I'm just going to cling to those things that do uplift me, that do draw me closer to the Savior, 
and I'm just going to make my own path within the faith. I think those are good words and an excellent conclusion. Awesome. Uh, Corbin, I appreciate you being on tonight. Um, just, just this issue has got so much depth to it. And I think we've laid out, if not everything, at least 90% of all the angles you can tackle, the history behind it, the quotes that are going on, the, the, the sleight of hand and, and misdirection that at times happens so that average members can stay comfortable. I think we've done it all. And I just appreciate you so much for being on tonight and, and just to thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me on, Bill. Could I just take two seconds to direct a message to Salt Lake? Absolutely. And the leaders of the church? Please. Just tell the truth. We can handle it. Have faith in the members. Have faith in the gospel. Have faith in the church. Just tell the truth. Yeah. And, and even today, when we're saying that we're being transparent, you and I both know, looking at the essays looking at how the policy came out from November, looking at how the church likes to frame certain issues or avoid certain questions, that even today in this age of claiming to be transparent, they're not doing that quite yet. And I just want to echo what you just said. Um, you made just two beautiful points. One, tell the truth. And two, we're big enough to handle it. We, we can do it. And I think a healthy Mormonism 100 years from now absolutely hinges on them doing that. Corbin, thank you again for being on. Thank you, Bill. Have a good night. They say what they win, now you say.